Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Oi, Mark. Oi, Simon. <coughs> Oi, Simon. Happy New Year. I'm going to do the whole of the programme as Tom Waits. What's up? What's up with your bad 2017 self? Oh, is it a different... So you've got there's a different bad self for each year, is there? I don't think James Brown was specific, was he? Is Get down a... with your 1966 bad self. Gareth, our engineer, yes, has apparently just said, "Is this the rambling bit? Are we just going to record the re- the rambling, rambling bit, bit of the show?" To which the answer is, "Yes, that's right. This is the rambling bit of the Before show." Before the other bit of the show, which delightfully apparently is not referred to as the rambling bit. Hilarious. Rambling. With an apostrophe. Rambling, yeah. No ram- rambling Simon Mayo could definitely go straight into Whispering Bob Harris. But don't you think Rambling Entertainment has a kind of a... There's an essence to it. There's a, a country purity. twang. There's a purity to it. I was listening to you yesterday on uh, Radio 2 and uh, Bob was on and uh, he just, he had there was a band that that you hadn't heard of, mm-hmm. but just simply on the basis of their names, which was, was it Prairie Blossoms or... Oh, I don't know, something like that. And you went, oh, I love them, just on the basis of the sound of their names. Yeah, and, and and the way Bob had introduced them. You know? No, 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 he had introduced a whole bunch of other people, and you'd said it's wonderful finding out about these bands who are, who are huge. Yeah. But then he said, you said, who else is on? And then he literally said the name, and it was something like Prairie Blossoms, and just on the strength of the name, you went, I, said, I love them already. Unfortunately, I missed the show because I was on my way home, but I am going to now make... You know, make you can sure. listen whilst you're on your way home. You're in a car, right? Now I'm on the tube. So Ooh, you can't. But I thought you 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 you've got a car park. You've you've given me lifts from here. Tube. But sorry. In the past. No, but you No been, one is this really is the rambling bit. No, it it isn't. I mean, welcome to the to I the world that the rest of us live in because I because I, I get the tube and the train everywhere. I don't yes. drive anywhere, but so but, but when walking in the tube. I've done it for about 5 years. Thanks very much for noticing. Well, I, have, I noticed you haven't given me a lift for a while, but you did but use, you use bit, it of a park in the car park. I'm in North London, you're in South London. Oh, I'll tell you what, that was in White City, wasn't it? Yes. That's why. So you haven't driven since we've moved from White City, which was how long ago? It was seven years ago. Seven years ago. Okay, fine. Was it before it became Radio 5 Live, when it was still Radio no, 5? it was still 5 Live. Okay. Uh, super rambling, by the way. Yeah, well, that's what he said. He said, are they going to do the rambling bit now? This is it. Should we say the first hello to Jason Isaacs? Of the new year. I've been watching him on the OA, which is this... I haven't seen it yet. He mentioned it when, when we were on before yeah, Christmas. And is it Brill? Because everyone says it's Brill. He, um, I don't know what, um, I don't know what I can say, but what, put it this way... Does that it, mean no? If I'm in the same room as him ever again, no. I'm going to leave. Pardon? I don't want to be in the same room as him ever again. Is his character horrible? I... I, I the thing is about this programme is you're never really sure where you are with anything. Right, OK. So I don't really know. OK. At the moment, I think he's thoroughly nasty. OK. But I might be completely wrong. OK, well, he must be acting brilliantly in that case because, as we know, Jason is not thoroughly nasty, but he is very capable of acting. Well, maybe he's just acting being pleasant. Maybe when we see him being nasty, that's the real Jason Isaacs. What do you think? That might be. What's, has he been... I mean, obviously, in Harry Potter, he's, you know, fiendish. Nasty. And, yeah. So what's the nastiest thing he's done? This well, this is the nastiest I've seen him. Okay, what's his character? Possibly. What's his character called? Mister Nasty, Lord Nasty, <laughs> Lord Nasty. <Nastydom. laughs> the, the mayor of Nasty, and he wears a mask, and he has a twirly mustache. Nasty masky. Yep. Um, 
So anyway, here's the thing. Hang on, he wears a, he wears a mask and he has a moustache. Well, how can you see the moustache out from the edge of the mask? <laughs> it's such a big, twirly, bad guy moustache. Okay. And he wears a black hat, which is always the way you can tell. Okay, you are making this up, aren't you? He doesn't actually wear a black hat and a mask. And a twirly moustache. And a twirly moustache. <laughs> Sorry, just vaguely, vaguely. No, not even vaguely. You, I couldn't you, even begin. Why? Is, there, is, there, is it because it's... I know because when we asked him what does OA stand for, he said, "I can't tell you. I have to kill you." I, I don't understand the, the thing. Problem, the problem. Give me the premise. I don't give me give me the pitch. Me the OA. Okay, go on. The problem with spoilers is, and because of the nature of the way things are released on Netflix right. and other sites, oh, you don't know where everyone else is. Is everyone else? No, people might not even started like me, like you. Okay, so so just so say? for somebody who hasn't seen it, vaguely, what is it? Just check. Are we are we being too rambling? No. Um, okay. This woman turns up and she's been lost for seven years. Right. And the first time we see her, she's jumped off a bridge and everyone goes, oh my, what's, what's going on? Anyway, then she's pulled out of the river and she, so she's all right. Yep. Apparently. Mm -hmm. And she goes back to her adoptive parents. Okay, but is it, sorry, is it? And she has some weird scarring on his on her back, and she won't say where she's been. Okay, so she's been like abducted by a cult or something like that, or she's space aliens or something. Mm -hmm. And is it? It's a thriller or mm -hmm. it's a mystery, mm -hmm. it, a comedy? No, Not at all. No, Fine, okay. no laughs. Okay, so dark. Yes. Adult. Yes, very. Okay, tough, violent, uh, spooky. Spook. Oh, okay. Strange, fine. So weird. Hor horror inflected. Uh, disturbing, not not horror, but certainly very disturbing. Okay, Scandi disturbing or no kind of Jason Isaacs weird. Okay, and Jason, it, if you're listening, I hope you sort yourself out because I don't like you. You know he's as an actor. I, I like. I know you, you, like, you don't, give I don't, like, his you don't like his character. Yes. I, it's just uh, there'll be people going no 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 don't don't no 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 I'm not I'm not well, I'm not because I haven't seen it so I don't know what all that is like the first ten minutes. Okay. okay. Right. So that's all I'm saying. Okay, well, I, would, I will definitely try and make time to watch it because it sounds great. Don't bang the desk. Okay, beg your pardon. First Simon time. Butler says, um, Recently I have felt the need for more entertainment in my life. It's always a good thing. <clears throat> so I've re-listened to the entire back catalogue during my commutes to work. I was struck by forceful memory jogs while listening to... Hang on, he's re-listened re to the... What do you mean? The, the, the entire... Well, everything that was available... Is, is the whole... Is everything available? Is everything available? Don't ask producer Simon. He's listening to something. Okay, else. it goes back about five years. Five, only five okay. years worth. Yeah. Okay. How long have we been doing it? A hundred. Okay. Uh, yes. So anyway, all these things, all these shows that I did reminded me of exactly where I was when I first heard them. Simon's interview with Emily Blunt as I smashed my suitcase trying to enter our Bristol office. <laughs> the Australian bird that failed to sound as if it was saying Babadook. Oh, no, it didn't. It sounded exactly like that. That was... um. We were in, yeah, that's that was great. As I paused the podcast to offer directions to a lost visitor to Richmond, the revaluation that fish have no sorry the revelation or that does say reevaluation the revelation that fish have no feet. Whilst I sat stranded at Virginia Water Station on a cold sleety, I don't evening. remember that. What was that? Most days. Oh, that, Tom, that was oh, how the, that was how did the that was the Tom Courtney interview. I beg your pardon. That's right. So sorry, it was. Of course, it was. Yeah, <laughs> laughing Tom. Most days I can't remember what I had for breakfast, but listening to the podcasts again opened a mental door into my previous doings. I don't really like the phrase <laughs> previous doings. <laughs> Isn't that what's causing all that trouble at the moment? Never mind. <laughs> 
That would be great, though, if it turned out that they had a file on someone's previous doings. I know some people who make a living examining those kind of things. <laughs> I know. I know. You really shouldn't have started that. I know that no, I've now got that image in my mind and I can't. <laughs> I know. Here's the doings that I did previously. Can you stop that, please? No, no because it's always funny. Oh. <laughs> I'm just concentrating now because. Because someone's made a poo joke and you're now, you're now laughing. I haven't got to the end of one email yet. Okay, We've sorry. Been rambling for sorry. hours. Are you told us to ramble at the moment? You said that we were told to do the rambling bit now. I know that you often refer to the quality of those missives sent into the show and yes. that your listeners are the best evs. And in testament to that, I should also note that some of the correspondence still gives me an unashamed lump in the throat, a chuckle, or indeed a meaningful nod of agreement. I know this email is not about movies, but then again, neither is, is your show. heartwarming show. <laughs> Big hugs, Simon Butler. Very good. So he kind of knows, doesn't he? I'm mean, just amazed that he's managed to work his way back through five years of the back catalogue. Alice in Reading might just get this in before we have to stop to do We've got them. ages. We've got seven minutes before they start. We've already done the Saturday links. Saturday, Saturday links. Saturday links. Saturday links. Saturday links. We should do an album. No, we shouldn't. <laughs> do you know that Stiff Records once re released an album called The Wit and Wisdom of Ronald Reagan that was blank on both sides? I think that is a, uh, a spin-off, or it's inspired by Tom Paxton, Go on. noted folky, who did a song called... Well, the song went... I'll sing of Spyro Agnew and all the things he's done. It went, I'll sing of Spyro Agnew and all the things he's done. Very good. And that was it. So it's kind of like a long standing, but that's that's pretty good. You'll have to bleep this, but I did, I was told as a what? child. No, what? no, no, you'll have to bleep this. No, challenge challenge yourself. Do this story without Robin needing to put birdsong over it. Challenge yourself. Do you know what Spyro Agnew is an anagram of? Every schoolboy knew this. <laughs> Place, re replacing rambling with silence. <laughs> I could be here a while. Have you got there? No. Okay. Were you? I th I'll, so it's. It's. I'll tell you. So that's it, fine. It's grow a beard. No, Pete. Okay. Thank you. That's it. And as a child, every but that's the only thing anybody knew about Spyroagni. And I'm surprised that that didn't get included in the song. Got no time for Alice in Reading. Well, no, let's see. We have yes, we have. We've got bags on. OK. Dear Rogue One and Rogue Squadron, a long-term listener back to my student days in 2001 when I used to listen to your programme from bed on a Friday afternoon. Classic student. As the parents of a 15-month-old baby, cinema trips as a couple ended in early September 15. Since an outing to see Spectre at a parent and baby screening when our son Oscar was 10 weeks old, I had not been to the cinema in over a year. This came to an end just before Christmas when my husband and I hatched a cunning plan to enjoy trips to the flicks without the necessity of paying a babysitter or worrying about leaving Oscar, albeit asleep, with a stranger. OK? Ready for this? Yes. This shall henceforth be termed Couples Consecutive Evening Cinema Dating, or CCECD for short. A new system whereby partner one enjoys the freedom to head out for the evening and revel in a peaceful viewing experience, including code-compliant gummy sweets. Partner two takes responsibility for bathing and putting baby to bed and then monitoring the monitor. The next evening roles are reversed. On evening three, the parties can engage in civilised conversation and spoiler-tastic discussion of the film. Very good. We trialled this approach with Fantastic Beasts and 
I had unqualified success. I had a great time on both evenings. My husband, Duncan, less fortunately, had to cope with a sickness incident, but manfully dealt with it, clearing up and changing everything, getting Oscar back to sleep before I returned home. This week, Rogue One was the film of choice, and I'm happy to say that both parties enjoyed both the film and an undisturbed evening at home. I thought Rogue One was superb, with enthralling visual effects, pacey story and very emotional conclusion. I would recommend CCECD to those in similar circumstances, and I'd be interested to know if any other parents have devised a similar method of film-going. Some friends we have mentioned this to have suggested it takes the romance out of seeing a film, but I'm sure Mark will agree that going to see a film alone... alone can give it an illicit frisson which only enhances the experience. What's so romantic about sitting in a darkened room for two hours and not speaking to anyone anyway? <laughs> All is as the force wills it, Alice in Reading. What do you think uh, of, not that you have to do CCECD anymore, but it seems like a very intelligent way of, it, of, of it, approaching the situation. It's really good. The, I, I would, In order for it to work properly, when you come back from the cinema, you'd have to give no indication, the person who went on the first night would have to give no indication of their response Sleep to the in film. separate rooms. Go straight to the spare room. Assuming there is one. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Sleep that on the says sofa. such a lot about your lifestyle. Go no, to the absolutely. go to the spare wing. <laughs> no, I said room. No. I reckon that there's, there's probably an alternative. Yeah, place but, to but, sleep. but what you'd have to do, you'd have to have an agreed form of conversation when you came back in the door. So how was it? No, no, no. But it would have to be something like, "Hello, how are you? I'm fine." Thank you. So, so, so nothing about your manner could give any indication. That's quite challenging. Yeah, but that, but that, then when the person, then the second person comes back, you can then have the. Oh my word! Because if you've been to see La La Land and you're, you know, you're tripping high as a kite when you come back because it's all been so fabulous. You mean tripping along? You don't mean tripping high as a kite? No, I mean that as means, in... that means that you've taken recreational drugs on oh, the way home. As in, uh, let's go fly a kite. <laughs> yes, but you're not tripping high. Okay, fine. I see the problem. That will come out. <laughs> fine, but anyway. okay, but so, but yes. Yeah, so if you can do it like that, so you've got no and nothing in your demeanour must say. It was a stinker. I really hated it. Plus, you have to not stop the other person from going. The key even if thing is, the person staying at home needs to go to bed first. And then when all is clear, send a text saying you could come in now. And then in the dark... Well, send a text from, the, from your sleep. No, just in... just As, you're, as you're going, as you're drifting off... You guys go I'm going to sleep now. You knew there were so many problems. Anyway, that's it, like the thing in in uh, the Holy Grail. His last is you know the Castle of Arg. Right. He wouldn't have written it, would he? Enough rambling. Look, look at the time. We've got two minutes. I need to prepare. <laughs> it's one minute anyway. Really? What what preparation are you going to do? You're going to rustle some papers. Spiro, Agnew. Agnew. <laughs> I'll come back to this. Okay. Good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. We're here till four o'clock and we're going to talk movies for a couple Oh, is that what we're going to do? I think that's what we're going to do, plus anything else that occurs to us. Uh, there's no live music on the show today. There is a live guest. Well, not, when I say, you know, it's a live conversation. But it's a recorded interview with Emma Stone, who is uh, one of the most talked about stars in the world, you would have to say. Yes, you? and and uh, most talked to stars in the world as well, because it, it, yes. extraordinary... Uh, Sort of press interest in, in La La Land. So La La Land, one of the big movies. Are there any other big movies which we can discuss? By the way, Happy New Year. I don't know if there's a certain amount of time that has... You know, if you haven't seen someone by February, do you still have to save your Happy New Year? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe... I mean, I, I'm still doing exactly you what you just it? did. I'm well, still Happy doing New Happy Year. New Year. Yes, which is... But I, the thing is, I've, my memory is very poor and I can't remember who I've said it to. Just assume you have. So I'm just yeah. So I'm just I'm just going. I'm going to wear a badge which says if I haven't mentioned it, Happy New Year. Thank you. 
Uh, there is an interesting... Manchester is... by the Sea, to answer your question that you answered before you went off into a print. What was that question? Are there any other big movies? Oh, there are. Yes, absolutely. In, so. uh, you can get in touch, of course. You can uh, watch the live stream and see how trim and gorgeous we are after our uh, break. <laughs> and uh, you can text us and you can email and you can tweet at Wittertainment. An interesting point of view, first of all, from Matthew Fell. Yes. Uh, as the fledgling People's Republic of Wittitania, all hail the People's Republic, continues to thrive as a country. This all happened last year, by the way, if you just joined us. We are actually, a, you're not just listening to a show, you're now taking part in a whole country. Do you have to have a passport to listen? Well, there are newly issued passports, but I think that's only if you actually come and live in Wittitania. Okay, you can, fine. anyone can listen. Uh, you also have a variety of anthems, a currency, the rant, obviously, the Church of Wittertainment, miracles, injuries, pledges, prayers and apps included, notwithstanding a well-established transport system that includes an airplane station and a cruise ship that travels the world, plus a thriving tech sector with iWitter, though the money has yet to filter down to the masses. Yeah, you see, that's the thing about trickle-down economics. It never trickles down, so move on. Uh, we must turn to one of the fundamental obligations of a country and the dilemma of how to... Clever dilemma. Very good. Uh, of how to protect your congregation around the world. In a world that is trumplesome, how does, which is a very good word, by the way, how does the People's Republic of Wittitania, the PRW, intend to defend its ethereal shores, corners, nooks, indents, transepts, receptacles, niches, atriums, vestibules and zones? How, how are we going to defend them, Mark? We're just going to defend them. Very good. But also, here's the second paragraph. Because it was a rhetorical question. Oh, I see. Sorry. Turning to defence matters, says Matthew, I offer my services in the mercenary capacity as someone who's listened to you previously in top secret bunkers, as well as on a variety of overseas operations, and feel I could... Do you think he's compiled a dossier recently, this guy? Carry on reading. Okay. Overseas operations, and feel I could definitely assist in the developing of the Witter Army, Witter Air Force, and Witter Navy should it be required. You seem to think about the Witter Navy is we don't need the boats driven by anybody. Uh, You seem to be making plenty of money from the iWitter app, so the funding of new equipment should not be the problem it usually is for military procurement. As a starter, we could hire a battalion of minions, complete with fart guns, some artillery pieces that fire shells that explode, quiet, 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 bang. Bang. Very good. And maybe some Krauss to actually do some flying and carry messages like... Krauss. is it? As in, as the crow flies. Oh, as the crow flies, I beg your pardon. Uh, To carry messages like speckled Jim. Very good. Do you want to explain that? I don't get it. No, but it's because I said that um, I used to think that the phrase, as the crow oh, flies, was as the crow lies. And I only found out that wasn't the case when I asked a teacher how you spelt crow. And then they ridiculed me in front of the whole class. As to leaders of the country, I'd like to nominate the state as the first marshal of the Witter forces in all his greased up glory and Chuckles Branner as head of strategy. Tickety tonkle, fruit and down with the Nazis. Matthew Fell is offering to. Do we take him on being in charge of defence matters? He's the first one to offer. I think, well, on, on that basis, yes. Thing is, he, thing is, he almost certainly has access to secret files. Yes. So we better just go along with... You don't, you don't want to be at war with your own security services, do you? No, that would be a very foolish thing. Box office top ten in just a moment, but I just want to mention Ninian... Very cheeky form this year, aren't you? Ninian McQueen. Ninian... Oh, yes! Ninian yes. McQueen. Who, if you... Architect. Yes. If you follow us on uh, Twitter, 
uh, or our Facebook page, you will know all about Ninian's extraordinary achievement. Ninian says, I write in reference to a fairly recent podcast of yours where Mark referred to the physical appearance of the church of Wittertainment. He described an uh, Escher-like concoction of an infinite of infinite corners and spaces folding away, Inception style. Yeah. He then proceeded to request that an architect knock up a model of said edifice. Having just passed my Part 3 qualification required to register as an architect, I felt now might be a good time to break the habit of a lifetime and email you guys. If you're able to open the attached PDF, where well, we did and we've put it on our Facebook page, you will find an annotated ground floor plan of how the Church of Wittertainment is laid out. OK, so we've, we've actually... We've printed it off. Yeah, you've done exactly what I did in my math, in my advanced maths O-level, when it said expand this equation, so I sellotaped a load of pieces of paper together and wrote the equation out bigger. Very good, very funny. This is, this is a bit like when... They review the papers and they rustle the papers is, just yes. to prove that we've got the papers here. But it's a magnificent architectural achievement. And all our little vestibules uh, are here. There's Humanist Hollow. There's the uh, Apothecary's Atrium. There's the Stephen Friary. Stephen Friary, is very good. Stephen Friary is very good. Toby Jones West Nave and the Noby Jones East Nave. <laughs> Statue of Emma Thompson. Monument to the good lady Professor Heron Dawes. There's the Altar of Women uh, to Women Pipe Smokers. <laughs> Clergy Corner, of course. I had forgotten all of these. Nigel Floyd has tweeted saying he's still holding out for a dedicated atheist apps, but didn't you? Isn't there an? Isn't there? Well, he wanted the atheist atrium, but isn't the humanist hollow going to be okay? I thought we'd done one of those anyway. I think it is a dedicated atheist more than uh, different to a humanist. I mean, a humanist is sort of. Is an atheist a hardcore humanist? Yeah, no, but an atheist is sort of you know, as opposed to an agnostic. An atheist is not just I, you know, it's somebody who's certain that there isn't. I think. Isn't, it? Isn't that correct? Uh, An agnostic is someone who's, well, you know, there's much to be said on both ways. Anyway, can I just thank Ninian McQueen for uh, an extraordinary achievement. And if you want to see all the details, it's it's up on our Facebook page and on Twitter. Great. And it is fabulous. And it and is, the whole church is in the shape of a massive great W, which is great. Uh, and uh, Ninian says, if you could mention uh, the name of my amazingly talented, wondrously intelligent and achingly beautiful partner, Sorcha, I would be eternally grateful she's been through quite a lot recently and if you could convey how much I love her and how much being with her means to me, I would be very happy. Okay. Well, given all the work that you've done uh, consider it a small a small repayment. Well, in fact, it's the only repayment you're going yes, to get. Yes, let's be clear about that. The only repayment. The absolutely the yes. only repayment. So, um, Emma Stone the other side of 2.30, will Mark like La La Land or will he just not get it? This is the question. Find out later. When have I not got a musical? Don't give it away. I'm trying to build it up. Okay, sorry. Yes, I might not get it. Okay, box office top 10 at 10, ballerina. On the subject of musicals, which I rather liked. Um, lovely animation, in fact, uh, which really sort of captured the, the the physicality of the dance that often doesn't happen when you have uh, danced on an animation. But it, I thought this really did, and I went in not knowing anything about it at all, and I was quietly charmed, very, very, you know, very nicely rendered. Uh, Monster Trucks is at number nine. I had seen Monster Trucks before we did the last show, but I wasn't allowed to review it, correct me if I'm wrong, because it was embargoed. There was an embargo on the review, and the embargoes, I think, lasted until the day that the movie came out, right, which was Boxing Day. We weren't on Boxing Day. Uh, we were on, but it was but it was, it was the best of the year show, whatever. And what a fine show that was. What a fine show it yes. was. So I've had to wait until now to go, Monster Trucks, what a load of old pants that was. Here's the plot. Monster Trucks. They're trucks. Monsterish. They're driven by monsters. In the, the monsters, right, they find the monsters come out of the, the water and then the boy who's got a truck but needs the engine doesn't work, he puts the monster in the, in the truck and then it becomes monster truck. And then there's another monster 
But another truck, what are we going to do with him? We'll take the engine out of the, put him in a monster trucks, plural. Monster trucks. Yes, I, I mean, that. literally, that, is, that must have been how the meeting went. Monster trucks. They're monsters in trucks. The thing is, that if you be... like cheese and you like peas, you'll love new squeezy cheesy peas. Monster trucks. That could be quite good. Except it isn't. Okay, well, now you need to tell me why it isn't. Because it's pants. But why is it pants? Because it's badly written, okay. badly rendered. But I mean, everything about it is just, you sit there watching them going, what? Really? And then they, they keep they open up the bonnet, and then there's the monster, and he's got the steering wheel. That if he if he turns the steering wheel to the right, the monster knows. If he pushes the accelerator, the you just go. I'm sorry, just because you think this is for a family, and uh, uh, this is one of the the case with this movie was even before the movie re was released, the studio were announcing the loss they were going to make on it because they knew it was pants. And uh, obviously, they embargoed the, they embargoed the reviews because they knew that everyone else knew it was pants. I didn't know anything about it when I went in to see it, other than it was called Monster Trucks. And then when I realised it was about trucks with monsters in them, I thought, okay. This is but it's a t I thought when I saw that, it's a bit like Snakes on a Plane. You go, okay, it's telling me what it is. It could be very... Yeah, but Snakes on a Plane was... I mean, Snakes on a Plane was kind of, it wasn't great, but it was kind of okay. And it was there was a couple of funny jokes in it, none of which can be repeated on the radio no. because they're all delivered by Samuel Jackson with the melon farming uh, Oedipal expletive. But Monster Trucks... Could be good. Isn't. Okay. I wish I'd been able to tell you that before it opened, but I couldn't. Why him is it number eight? Okay, fine. Uh, yeah, so uh, so why him? Not great either. Did you want to talk more about Monster Trucks? No, no, I've said okay, what on. it is about Monster Trucks. I mean, partly, as I said, it was, the, it was the having seen it and then having to sort of, you know, bide my time at it. Why him? So uh, Brian Cranston is a father whose daughter... Um, has taken up with an internet billionaire who is terribly uh, uh, noisy and, uh, and and crass and vulgar, uh, but actually is meant to be very lovable and deeply truth telling. And it's all about, you know it's basically like uh, Meet the Fockers. It's that same idea, but done with less wit, less intelligence. And my question was, why Brian Cranston? Why are you doing this? You're better than this. You don't need this. That said, I've seen a couple of really really positive reviews about that film from people whose opinion I respect. So it is just me, but I thought it was terrible. Uh, so that's why him and number eight. Fantastic Beast number seven, we kind of done that. I Covered, think. I think. Uh, Moana number six. Which I loved. Have you seen it yet? I haven't, I'm afraid. Uh, Passengers is at number five. Now here's Denise Atkins, who is in Sutton Coalfield. i just been to see Passengers, and I have to say I completely disagree with your listener who said it would have been better if the male and female roles had been switched. I felt that if it had been Jennifer Lawrence's Aurora stranded alone on the ship, it would have smacked of desperate single woman can't survive without a man in her life. Cliché. Instead, I thought it gave a sensitive portrayal of Jim, played by Chris Pratt's isolation, left alone on the ship, and we saw some moving moments which demonstrated the fundamental need for human contact, which, had it been the female, might have seemed needy or trite. All in all, while the film wasn't without flaws, it was an interesting premise, well executed, with charming performances and plenty to keep me interested right to the end. It's, it is it is really interesting how divisive um, uh, Passengers have proven. Some people, find, and I understand why, find the whole idea of it completely objectionable. Um, I think... What is the, the, what is well, the, the idea? Well, the, the idea is, and again, a, a couple of people complain that this is a plot spoiler. It's in... I mean... Okay, if you don't want to have the plot spoiled, then... Don't, so the story is there are mm. people on a ship, they're all meant to be asleep, okay? They're all meant to be asleep for the duration of the... Of they're the, the passengers. Ship, they're the passengers. One of them wakes up by mistake... 
because the the ship malfunctions. He's then alone on the ship and he realizes he's going to have 90 years alone on the ship. And he falls in love with somebody else who is asleep and you can fill in the rest of the blanks for yourself. I don't know I don't know how it's possible to describe that in a way that isn't in any way so fine. And uh, I think that the film is much more conscious of the um of the the complexities of his actions than some people have given it credit for. I do understand entirely why it is that the, that the issues that it raises um, are really, really uh, troubling. And I also understand that some people think that the film just makes light of them. I don't. I don't think it's a great film by any means, but I think it's a better film than its really harsh critics give it credit for. And uh, I, mean, I, thought it, I thought it was kind of enjoyable nonsense. I think it is nonsense, but I think <laughs> and it makes no sense, incidentally, just in terms of its, you know, its story, it makes no sense at all. But uh, I didn't, I didn't, I said it was peculiar because when I went in, somebody actually said to me, sharpening up your knives then. And I said, why? And they said, well, you haven't seen the reviews. I went, no, I, I haven't seen the reviews. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah, well, in fact, and, and in fact I, I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. Number four is Silence. Silence is a very complicated film. And I don't think it's Scorsese's best by a very, by a very long chalk. So the story is, I mean, it's based on a, on, a, on a novel which has been filmed before. There's a Japanese version of this uh, story from the 1971. And the story is basically uh, Portuguese priests going to Japan where Christianity has been outlawed and where Christians are being forced to apostatize to renounce their faith. Liam Neeson is the Jesuit priest who has gone on ahead uh, as a missionary and has now apparently apostatized, has now renounced his religion and is living as they describe it, as a Japanese with a wife and family to match and uh, living as a Buddhist. And the two priests refuse to accept that this has happened to their mentor, so they travel to Japan. And uh, the film is then about their story and their crisis of faith. I think there are really... I mean, it's clearly Scorsese's most personal work since Mean Streets. It's a text with which he's wrestled for years and years, apparently straight after Last Temptation of Christ, he was given a copy of the book and immediately, you know, wanted to bring it to the screen. Uh, and I think he's done a, a, a fine job of it, but I don't think it's his best work because, firstly, I think there are some problems in having the Portuguese priest speaking English with slightly odd Portuguese accents. Secondly, I think the film, it, it, by its nature, is very, very talky. And because it's long theological discussions about the nature of apostatizing and the nature of confessing to something you haven't done in as a as a sort of you know if you ren- if you publicly renounce a faith is that actually renouncing the faith there's one point in which somebody's actually told look just do it just step on just to step on the on the icon doesn't mean anything just do it and uh, so it raises some very, and there are some really horrendous scenes in it that are made all the more horrendous by the stillness of the camera. Beautifully, beautifully shot. I know a couple of people who walked out at that point. Oh, really? Because they found them too intense. Okay. I mean, I think that's a credit to it because actually the scenes aren't that graphic. There's a couple of graphic moments, but they aren't that graphic. It's that the stillness of the camera, the distance of the camera, particularly. Um, there's one particular scene that takes place on the seashore that seems to go on for a very, very long time. And I think it's a credit to the film that those scenes are as horrifying as they are. I just, I think it's, it's a film that has, you know, like it's like, like it's characters. It's a film which is stretching for eternal truth and flailing and faltering on the way but it's doing it with enough passion to carry it through. If you're a Scorsese fan, I mean, you do have to see it because it is an important film. 
it's just not it's not king of comedy and i don't mean that lightly or fatuously king of comedy is a brilliant piece of cinema this is a good piece of cinema about a really, really uh, a subject which is very, very close to its director's heart. Alex Lacey says, I was up for seeing Moana, but my friend sent me the trailer for Silence. What a rip-roaring thriller, I thought. What an exciting premise, full of intrigue, skullduggery, what I suspect the BBFC would describe as scenes of peril. Brilliant. If Silence gets any awards this season, it should be for trailer editing. The next almost three hours were one of the dullest, most repetitive watches I have ever had to endure. The multiple occasions of, you must change religion. No. Oh, OK had me tearing my hair out and leaving the screening room to ask the usher how long was left of this purgatory. I nearly cried when he said 40 minutes. You can always leave, Alex, but you can walk out. A very bizarre choice was to have the main characters use a Portuguese accent, as you were mentioning, despite it being in English. In English. Adam Driver, a bit underused in favour of a weaker Garfield, nailed it. Garfield channelled faulty towers and Neeson simply didn't bother. I admit I laughed out loud when the director... I'd clearly tried to get Wolf Puncher to speak Japanese, but gave up after just one word. Normally a tentative word, a, fa- a tentative fan of Scorsese, on this occasion he needs to take a long, hard look in the mirror. About three hours should do it. Harsh? I, yes, I mean, I think it's better than that, but I yeah. do understand why. I mean, I did do a blog about this, about what people expect from Scorsese movies. I haven't seen the trailer for Silence. I don't know how the trailer sells it, but, you know, it's it's a... It's a tough film about a spiritual quest. It's not a thrilling action adventure. Paul uh, Verney went to see uh, Silence late last night. I must report I was pleasantly surprised, despite okay. some trepidation that the viewing experience might be something of a slog, the film not being a not, a not un- insubstantial two hours, 41 minutes. I instead found that I was thoroughly engaged throughout. The film explored so many interesting topics, faith, doubt, colonialisation, cultural relativism and the limits of cultural translation. The depictions of torture, whilst terrific, were not gratuitous, though I do think that the 15 certificate might be a touch low. I did, I must confess, occasionally expect to hear the sound of coconuts being bashed together in a Python-esque manner whenever we were shown figures moving in the dense fog. But a decent film. Uh, Silence at four, A Monster Calls at three. Uh, which I, I loved. And it's funny because Liam Neeson is in Silence and Liam Neeson is the monster in A Monster Calls. And um, it's it's a one of the things that fairy tales do is to take real-life situations, real-life traumas, and deal with them in a fantastical way that actually, I think, gives you the tools to deal with real life itself. And Monster Calls is a perfect example of this. The story is of a young boy who is terrified about uh, his mother's ongoing illness and he is visited by uh, a tree monster played by Liam Neeson who says that he will tell him a series of stories and then he will demand that the young boy tells him his story. And the stories are developed through uh, sublime animation and uh, the film basically blurs the line between fantasy and reality and it does so in a way which is really touching, really heartbreaking, really moving, very uplifting. Uh, it's directed by uh, Juan Antonio Bayona who uh, made uh, the film, which you, the, the to Tsunami film, which you liked, uh, The Impossible, and also, of course, made The Orphanage, L'Orfinata, which was uh, presented by Guillermo del Toro and owed a great debt to Guillermo del Toro. And a Patrick Ness story and Patrick Ness. Yes, story. absolutely. And then Patrick Ness story, because you... Do you, do you, do you, oh, he's you I think he's a genius. Okay. Do you, do you know him? Is that I've interviewed him a few times. Okay. And apparently, the, I haven't read the book, but apparently the film is very, very close to the book. I thought it was really wonderful. The only the only warning I would give you is, give yourself five minutes at the end of it on your own because you'll you know you won't want to be immediately greeted by tra- you know it, you need to gather yourself okay. afterwards. Well, on that point, uh, Danny from Hockley 
I went to see Monster Calls, having been pre-warned that I may need some tissues. Oh, right, OK. Blimey, Charlie, I'm not sure how much of the last half hour I actually saw as my eyes were full of tears. I can't remember the last time a film had such a moving effect on me. Despite coming out emotionally drained, I'm so thankful that even though I'm in my early 50s and can remember Pearl and Dean advertising the first time round, <laughs> cinema can still have the power to make a relatively old man cry. Uh, Rosie... Uh, says, I saw a monster calls at the beautiful Tyneside cinema yesterday. While tough, this is a beautiful and engaging film. Having experienced similar circumstances to Connor, albeit at an older age and with broader family support, I found the uh, the Bubba BFG incredible. incredible. Like, is that suggesting that the tree monster is a cross between the Bubba so. Duck and the BFG? Yes. Would that, be... that, w- that would kind of make sense, yes. Okay. Uh, I recognise so many of Connor's emotions from my own experience, most challengingly his truth. I don't know if or when I'll be able to watch the film again. I cried intermittently throughout and solidly throughout the last half hour, Mm -hmm. but it will stay with me for a long time. Uh, And just one more, Chris Plowman. Uh, whilst I suffer from lacrimosity syndrome on a regular basis, I can't get through either Brastaff or Toy Story 3 without being reduced to a blubbering wreck. I thought that whilst watching A Monster Calls, my symptoms might have reduced. Although I'd been told by many that it was an emotional journey and that tissues would be required, I'd got towards the end of the film and I wasn't watery of eye. The illness... Uh, I was fully composed until... I felt as though I'd been physically punched in the heart and the floodgates open. No film has elicited that strong a reaction in me since Pan's Labyrinth, a film it shares much in its fairy tale reality. It does. And I mean, the, the, the Del Toro connection is very strong. Um, as I said, you know, uh, the orphanage absolutely uh, was something which, which as a, Del Toro ended up presenting. And I remember being at Cannes when they had the first screening of the orphanage, the first one that I saw. And Juan Antonio Biona was there, and he's quite small, and Guillermo is big. He's a big guy. And at the end of the screening, and people didn't know what to expect, and they loved it. They absolutely loved it. And there was a standing ovation. People stood up. And um, and I remember this really clearly. Uh, Guillermo literally picked Juan Antonio up and, st- and put him on his shoulders so that he was above the crowd. And it was just this brilliant image of Juan Antonio Biona sitting on Guillermo del Toro's uh, shoulders, which in a way sort of seemed so much to to encapsulate the magic sense that the film had. And I think A Monster Calls is proof that he really is a very, very impressive director. Uh, Rogue One is at number two. Yeah, we liked it. And Assassin's Creed is at number one. Yeah, and and a lot of people have been very, very sniffy about Assassin's Creed. It's got some very sniffy reviews. I enjoyed it. As I said, I I haven't played the game. I've watched the game being played many times. You enjoyed it and you haven't played the game. Correct. You now have um, a report from because your child one is a is a player, all, and he says he 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 wanted to enjoy it more, but certainly the bits that were in the past were the exception mm-hmm. bits, and the bits that were in the present were a little bit disappointing. Yeah, okay. All the all the history stuff where he was assassing everyone. That <laughs> was assassinating. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's not a verb. I enjoyed it. I mean, I I think. The thing that impressed me most was in your interview with um, Michael Fassbender that what he talked about a lot was taking seriously, you know, Ubisoft's source material. And I just thought it was great to hear an actor of his stature, you know, somebody who's been described as, you know, the new brand of the new De Niro, that sort of stuff, taking the video game as seriously as he did. Whatever the flaws of the film may be, and there are some, I like the fact that it took its subject matter seriously. Uh, so, uh, that's the box office top ten. Uh, Assassin's Creed is at number one. Uh, this, by the way, 
is the sound of La La Land correspondence. OK. Everyone who's seen it has sent us an email. Which, although it opens today, loads of people have seen it already. They've seen it in screenings or they've seen it while they've been abroad. Because there were previews, weren't there, on yeah, Sunday? Yeah. Lots and lots of previews. So thank you very much for the correspondence. We'll get through as much as we possibly can. Uh, Mark's review on the way. First of all, though, my conversation uh, with Emma Stone after you hear this clip featuring Emma and her co-star in La La Land, Ryan Gosling. I got a call back. What? Come on. <laughs> For what? For a TV show. The one that I was telling you about earlier. The Dangerous Minds meets the OC? Yeah. Congratulations. It's That's really incredible. Exciting. I feel like I said negative stuff about it before. What? It's like Rebel Without a Cause, sort of. I got the bullets. Yes. You've never seen it. I've never seen it. Oh, my. You know it's playing at the Rialto. Really? Yes. You should, I mean, Ali can, can take you. Okay. You know, for research. For research? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Monday night, 10, 10 o'clock. Yeah, great. Okay. For research. And that's a clip from La La Land. I'm delighted to say Emma Stone is on the show. Emma, how are you? Good afternoon. I'm doing great. How are you? I, I'm also fine. But then <laughs> I haven't just won Golden Globes and that kind of thing. There must, there must be a point. You must have got to a point where you think, actually... We don't really need to promote this movie anyway. We could just sit here and talk about the weather and food and all that kind of stuff. If you'd like to do that, I would love to do that with yes, you. Yes, but the people with you, they wouldn't like that. <laughs> I don't so. know if that's true. Do you think your work is done? I mean, you've been talking about this movie and the astonishing reception that it's had since August. You make a very good point. Yes. Is so is there anything is there anything anything if you, new? you can ask me any anything about anything at this point. Okay. You just I go am, ahead. I am gonna ask you about the film though. Okay, all right. If that's okay. If there's that's anything fine. else. How was the uh, the Golden Globes? Did you kinda know that you were because I think you won in every single category that the film was entered for? That was an amazing night for you. It was a really it was such a great night and it was so fun to all be together too. Um and just kind of celebrate in that way. It was very exciting. This film, like, if this film, like, feels like a long time ago. Like I said, you've been talking about it since August. It opens in the UK today. Then the, all the Oscar chat is is happening, as you're well aware. At what stage did you think, hang on a second, we're onto something really big? I mean, I think honestly. In August at Venice, when we went when we went to the Venice Film Festival, it was really it was the first time I had ever seen it or any of us had ever seen it with an audience outside of just the crew. And, you know, it was, it's one thing to work on the film for five months with the crew and be very excited about, you know, how it turned out. But it's a little bit of a biased <laughs> viewpoint. Sure. So we weren't sure how the kind of outside reaction would be and and to go to Venice and um, the, the, it felt like a positive reception there. It was, that was really kind of where I think we all were sort of looking at each other a little stunned and, and the excitement really sort of built from but it, there. It, you know, it's worth repeating. This is Damien Chazelle's third movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His third movie. And his first movie was kind of like his school thesis. That's so. right. And then there's Whiplash. But at what stage... So what stage, when was it when you were reading the script? When did you think, yes, this is obviously for me? Because I would Im- imagine you'd look at that and think, you wouldn't obviously think this is an Oscar winning or a Golden Globe winning or a huge number one movie. I, to be honest with you, I Damien was incredibly patient with me and, and spoke to me for 
quite a while um, about the movie because he I I was doing cabaret on stage in New York and he came and saw it, which I think was kind of my unofficial mm-hmm. audition for the for the movie and and we talked about it. I read the script. I thought it was beautiful. It made me cry. I mean, the ending on the page feels like the ending on screen. But I was really sick and I had lost my voice and I couldn't imagine doing a musical again. And I had a lot of questions about the tone of the film and how it would all how it would all work out. So I don't think it was an immediate kind of this is this is exactly what I should go do right now because I was just I had a I had a lot of concerns. But he his patience was amazing because we ended up having a lot of very important conversations, I think, about about how it would all come together and be cohesive and, you know, have these characters that actually felt subtle and and um grounded and human and then burst into song or fly off into space yeah well i (laughs) I want want to ask you about that but in that in that conversation when you were clearly taking a little bit of persuading did did ryan gosling come up in the conversation then were you booked as a pair was the idea always to have you guys together no no so when i was talking to damien about it at the beginning it was pretty it was kind of independent of anything and then um ryan came along a bit later and they i think damien and ryan actually met about a different project probably the one that they're going to make now. And then this somehow came up in conversation when he was asking Damien what he was, you know, was trying to work on in the moment. So no, that was, that ended up happening separately. You mentioned, you mentioned flying off into space. I just want to ask you about that because it seems to me, I mean, one of the, one of the many triumphs of the film, obviously the music and the dancing, which, which want to get to in just a second. But the fact that you, are able to fly off into space. You manage to have these fantasy sequences, and yet it's a very intimate and very personal movie, and heartbreaking movie, and beautiful. To be able to combine those two elements seems an astonishing achievement. And I think that's a. It's an enormous testament to Damien because that was always his intention to marry those those things. It sounds impossible. Which was yeah, which was my you know series of endless questions for him. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. and also presumably part part of your question would have been how much prep am I going to have to do for this? Because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, you're already uh, in cabaret, but there must have been tap and ballroom and singing and getting those notes. I mean, how much work did you have to do? It was three months of rehearsal. So we would we would kind of go to our daily tap and ballroom lessons. Ryan would go off and learn piano. I would go to singing lessons. We would go and do scene work with Damien, um, work on dialogue, improvise some scenes, and Damien would write things down, and we would shift and change things. It was just, we were all sort of living on top of each other for about three months, and then and then we shot for two months after that. And uh, one take, we hear for a lot of the shots? A lot of the shots were one take, yeah. The, our dance number on the top of the hill was one take. My audition song was one take, Um we had, yeah, he he wanted to keep, I think, as many of the numbers as fluid as possible in one. Which was the toughest part? Probably the duet on the top of the hill. But also, it was also my favorite scene because I think it's about six minutes long. And we learned, you know, essentially to dance for that on a hilltop. But we had been rehearsing for four months by that point. So it was just really exciting to finally do it and get it. And we had one hour to get it because it was at magic hour. So the sun was setting. They reasoned that that would be about five takes per hour. So we had one hour on the first day, one hour on the second day. And I think he used the second take of the second day. It's interesting you should talk about the fabled 
Magic Hour. The last time that was discussed on the program was when Leonardo DiCaprio was on. We were talking about The Revenant, oh, yeah. and uh, and I mean two more contrasting movies. I don't think you're going <laughs> you're going to find. But does it feel special, or is that someone? Is that a cameraman who's going to be going? This is a special moment. Does it feel special from an acting point of view? Well, Magic Hour is really essentially dusk or dawn. You know, to be honest, to The Revenant, Chivo, the cinematographer of The Revenant, was the same. As on Birdman, and we did do some magic hour shots there too. It's just this, it is a real, yeah, it feels like a very magical time of day. You know, that yeah. kind of sunset time is beautiful. But it what we were shooting on for La La Land, that sort of 35 millimeter anamorphic film, it really picked up something beautiful. And now it's kind of funny to talk about because people think that's a green screen which essentially it could have been, but it was not. But it certainly isn't. And But as a calling card, your opening sequence uh, takes the breath away, doesn't it? I mean, I, Americans will know it, but obviously I wrote down it's 105 freeway at the junction of 110 into downtown Los Angeles. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Anyway, all blocked off, and you have that whole singing and dancing routine there. That was astonishing. What an achievement. And apparently the weather was terrible because it was so hot and everyone was was getting very melty. There were notices that were sent out to everyone and a doctor on set in case anyone overheated too much. It was about 100 dancers on, you know, the rooftops of cars. And it was really spectacular. It was also the lucky break that Ryan and I had. that We were not in that scene. We just got to sit in our cars and have a front row seat. <laughs> that's, that's right. Just, <laughs> to that just watching everyone else work. Musical number, exactly. Uh, compare the, the work and the preparation that went into this film with learning to play tennis. Oh, boy. Well, the lucky break I had on La La Land was that I actually had sung and danced to some extent before. Tennis was a literally a, a whole new ball game for me. I'm not talking about this because of Billie Jean King, yes. obviously, and the Battle of the Sexes. And I'm fascinated by it because Billie Jean King came on the show a few years ago when the documentary Battle of the Sexes came out. And what a great guest she was. I mean, she was absolutely There's nobody terrific. better. So now this, is, so is this a fictionalized version or is this the, what's, what's happening with this? It is, um, it's written by Simon Beaufoy and it's, the story essentially, I mean, there is a bit of, it's a bit compact because everything is in 1973. So the events that took place leading up to the Battle of the Sexes, which was in September of 1973, are essentially, we're sort of learning the the backstory of Billie Jean King and, and of Bobby Riggs, her competitor in the Battle of the Sexes. But it's a, it's a very interesting and fascinating story. And obviously she's an icon now, but at 29, yeah. she wasn't out and she... She was the number one tennis player in the world, so it was a, it was a very interesting role to play. A couple of listeners' questions just before we finish. Yes. Uh, Diana Whitmill says, does your brother still write your awards acceptance speeches? <laughs> this is, I think he wrote one, I think it was the Guy's Choice Award in yep. 2012, yeah, yeah. and this was for Hot and Funny. Yep. Yeah. He, um, <laughs> he hasn't. He hasn't since, but I, I may have to petition him. You know, in case, in case La La Land, you know, goes to the Kids' Choice Awards or something. Yeah, do you think? <laughs> Because now would be a time maybe just to get in touch and say, is there anything you think he's, I should He's my date. He was I my date to the Golden Globes. Oh, really? Yeah. Was he impressed? I think he had a good time. Uh, Keith Fraser asks, who would win in a jazz-off, Ryan Gosling's character from La La Land or Miles Teller's character from Whiplash? Probably Ryan's character, I would say, in terms of playing or, yeah, playing. or expertise. Playing rather oh, than no, a fight. No, 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 no. That's the, they'd have to duke that out. I can't choose that. I, I was just thinking the you know expertise level, maybe Ryan's character. Uh, La La Land opens today. Emma, uh, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. 
She's class, you have to say, uh, Emma Stone, uh, co-star of La La Land, along with uh, Ryan Gosling, as uh, as you heard. Did Mark get it? Did Mark fall for the class and beauty of this new movie, or has it left him completely cold? One of the things that worried me um, before seeing La La Land was that whenever you get a film which people love as much as people do, um, and you hear good things about it, you're always alarmed that you're going to go in and it's going to be a disappointment. And this is, it's, it's a, one of the problems with being a critic. You know, if you see a film and it's really great, you say to everyone it's really, really great, and then they go in with high expectations. And Because ever since the film had played at Venice, it's been getting these uh, reports of people saying, you know, it's terrific, it's wonderful, it's marvellous. Um, you know, it's bringing back the musical back to life, although, of course, the musical's never gone away, clearly demonstrably never gone away. Um, and so I sat down to La La Land with a certain degree of trepidation. And then the opening uh, sequence with the the song that you talked about there on the on the freeway during the traffic jam in which, you know, the camera swoops and swirls and it appears to be done in a single shot. Um, and it's basically this introduction to the whole landscape in which the thing is going to play out. Four minutes in, I was, you know, I was won over for a number of reasons. Firstly, because I thought it was the whole thing was breathtakingly choreographed, not just the, you know, the dancing, but actually the uh, the way in which the, the camera worked. Secondly, uh, the story has, I mean, obviously it refers back to in classic old Hollywood musicals, but also to the work of Jacques Demy and, you know, you see on Brothers of Cherbourg and, uh, you know, along with... The, uh, singing in the rain there's a lot of singing in the rain there there are very very heavy allusions to uh, Casablanca and all those things are all there but what um, Damien Chazelle who's five years old as far as I can tell is he five he's 31. 31 I mean it's just I mean, it's, you know, it's just it's his third movie I know it just makes me want to sit in a corner and weep frankly um uh, what he said he wanted to do was to have, have something which had the magic of musicals but also had the texture and the the grit of real life and uh and I think he's managed to do that. I think, uh, oddly enough, the film occupies that sort of strange space between the sort of throwback creakiness of Woody Allen's Everyone Says I Love You and the extraordinary sort of futuristic fluidity of gravity. I mean, actually, not least in the Griffith Observatory sequence, which is literally defying gravity. Um it's two central characters, one of whom is an aspiring actress, the other of whom is a, a, a diehard jazz muso who absolutely believes in this the proper form of jazz and is devoted to his cause. Um, these are characters that to some extent you've seen before, but what what the film does is it plays with your expectations uh, of them and uh, you know he learns from her about following your dream and she learns from him about the jazz which she didn't know about and together... They have their own individual dreams. City of Stars, you shining just for me. They sing together until compromise comes calling. And this is interesting because obviously one of the things about Whiplash is Whiplash is very much a film about compromise. There's that thing, isn't it, about there's no 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 worse two words than good job. Good job, that's not enough. You have to be better than good job. And of course, J.K. Simmons you know, that makes an appearance. And um, what I liked, therefore, was firstly, let's look at the performances. Emma Stone is terrific. There is a scene in the film in which Emma Stone goes to do an audition. We see her at the beginning in that traffic jam practising the lines for the audition. And then she goes to the audition. And the whole thing is about how brutal auditions are. But she does this thing in which she's reading lines that you, it's a soliloquy that um, you've seen her reading in the car. And it's a Brando-esque masterclass in acting. I mean, it's literally a single but shot. But she still doesn't get the gig. Well, but that, that's the but that's the game. That's not instantly a plot spoiler. This is all in the first 10, 15 minutes of the film. But the point is, what's, is that she's brilliant. I mean, as a you know, it's just the, one of the finest bits of acting, acting I have ever seen. Meanwhile, Ryan Gosling, who let us not forget, you know, has hoofed in the past and was a child star and all that sort of stuff. 
What he does is he brings to it that kind of taciturn, dour thing that means that when they do that sequence that they're talking about uh, up on the hill, you know, it's a what a waste of a night. You know, I'd never fall for you. You'd never fall for me. You kind of believe. That's where the poster shot comes from. Yeah, yeah. you believe them. And it was funny because she's talking about, you know, we shot it at Magic Hour and she said people think it's a green screen. And people think that because also because of artificial moonlight, because of the lamps, you know, the, the street lamps that you get in L.A. that are referred to as producing artificial moonlight, that kind of strange glow that you get. And I thought in terms of um, its uh, its literacy, the way in which it understood the history of musicals and loved musicals, I thought it was absolutely sumptuous and delightful to watch. I loved the explosions of colour. I loved the, I loved the fact that it was unashamedly um, a film celebrating those traditions, but also wanted to take its character seriously. So you seriously believe in the, in, in the character. So although you're seeing riffs from, as I said before, Singing in the Rain, you're seeing them, you're seeing them to a certain extent with the dirt under their heels. And when they dance, she takes her shoes off because, you know, she's been walking in heels. That, you know, that refers to the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, Ginger Rogers saying, you know, everything Fred Astaire did, I did backwards and in heels. Not in this particular case. And, you know, some people have said, well, the point is they're not the greatest dancers. They're not meant to be the greatest dancers in the world. And I think what the choreography does, which is lovely, is it takes them just far enough. It pushes them just far enough because they're meant to be real people. And the film brilliantly sort of talks about the divide between what we expect of the world because of what we've seen of it uh, in the cinema and what the world is really like. It also has a very, very audacious narrative structure. There are times there are elements in it that reminded me of uh, riffs from New York, New York, Martin Scorsese's uh, musical, which is still sort of seriously uh, underrated. There are moments of real uh, intimacy in terms of fantasy, I mean, one of the things that musicals do is that they can they can give physical expression to inner thoughts, to intimate inner thoughts. And I think that the film manages to do that really terrifically. I liked the songs. I liked the lyrics. I liked the cheekiness of it. I liked the fact that it was a film that wasn't afraid to be melancholy, wasn't afraid to be bittersweet, didn't... Uh, you know, bottle out of its commitments to seeing its characters through. And I and I came out the end of it thinking, I just want to go straight back in and watch that again. And as I said, the greatest challenge, I think, for it was when everyone's been this vociferously positive about it, it's a hard job to live up to that. And I, it won me over. I, I think it's really good. Apparently the opening sequence, which people will talk about, which yeah. you mentioned a lot, which is on the filmed on the freeway, they had to shut it down for the weekend. Yeah. That was never going to be the opening of the movie. They had like an overture, which was going oh, right. to be the opening, and it was maybe it was going to be in maybe... And then they looked at that and went, that's the opening of the but movie. Three months, three months, it wasn't there. That wasn't wow. the opening of the movie, which seems extraordinary. Wow. Um, overwhelmed by correspondence. I just want to say there is always a moment, either musicals run in your blood, you instinctively are there for them. You know, you listen to Elaine Page every Sunday afternoon and That's you me. just get the whole thing. Or some you like and, and some you don't. And there is always a moment in every musical where I think back to the Terry Jones, Michael Palin moment in Holy Grail, where <laughs> Terry Jones is kind of dressed up as the kid and Michael Palin is the dad and the father and the father and and Terry Jones wants to sing and Palin is I don't want all this all I want is to sing and the orchestra starts and Palin says cut that out out. you're not singing while I'm here and it's like one of the and there's always a moment in most musicals I'm thinking why you why sing now why would you just talk anyway it's worth saying on that point Nigel Floyd my very great friend and colleague in atheists in atheists uh, uh, asp uh, uh, and uh 
Nigel's always said this thing about that he has this problem with musicals, which is that they start singing, and all the musicals that he likes um, are ones in which it, it, you know, like Cabaret, because the singing doesn't, they don't suddenly break into singing. The singing is part of the narrative. That's fine. He has the same thing with you at the moment that somebody's walking along and then suddenly they're singing. I don't have that problem at all. I, I, I never have done, but it may well be, you know, some people like opera, some people don't. It's just a, it's just a thing. You either, if you've got a problem with it, I don't think yeah. there's any solution for it. it, it certainly, Nigel, Nigel is not going to change his mind now. It's just the first. It's you know, you get over it. Uh, well, if it's a good musical, you get. I get over this Terry Jones Michael Palin moment very, very quickly, uh, indeed, as I did for this because it, it, it's so. And I and yes, and I intend to see it again exactly as you. Did. You enjoyed it very much, didn't you? I did. Julia McKinnell in Sydney. Hello. Uh, as in uh, Australia. Listening live in Sydney, where it must be three o'clock in the morning. Surely. Well, I think I got this uh, email. A few, oh, a few days ago. I beg your pardon. Sorry. I have just got back from my third viewing of La La Land. Uh, came out <laughs> so that's in a Australia thumbs up. Boxing Day. The number of times I have already seen it may give you an idea of my feelings about this film. From the moment the screen ratio widened to Cinemascope, yeah. I knew I was in for something special. But just say, just, just this, this isn't a plot spoiler because it starts with it's like that old advert for um, you know for this is the cinema. It starts with a kind of black and white image which says mus. And you go, you cut, and then and then the, the it pulls back, so you can see it says presented in cinemascope, and then the color comes in. And it's a it's a lovely, glorious opening moment. By the film's end, I was completely in love. There are not enough superlatives in the English language to describe Damien Chazelle's glorious film. Everything from the story, the acting, the music, uh, the costumes, the stupendous cinematography, the dancing, the planetarium scene, all felt like uh, Chazelle had sat down and made this film for me. The film buff in me smiled at the references to the films of Jacques Demy, Stanley Donan, uh, Gene Kelly and all the golden oldies that this 26-year-old loves so dearly and the dancer in me wanted to climb into the screen and (laughs) dance with them. Some people... Oh, that's such a... What a lovely image. You love the film so much that you want to climb into the screen like in, um, you know, Purple Rose of Cairo. What a beautiful image. Some people have described La La Land as escapist or feel-good. I can't agree. After the pain and loss many experienced during 2016, La La Land is a reminder of the real existence of such things as love, generosity and joy. And the sadness in the film story only enhances these, them, these I, themes. I absolutely agree with that. The sadness in the in, in the story only enhances the joyous elements of it. That is absolutely spot on. You can, right on the money. You can write that one and put that in your paper column. I've already that's already gone that. off. Yes, although I have to say I used a phrase very similar to that. David Allardyce, um, I adore this movie from the spectacular opening scene to the unexpected ending. I was absolutely captivated. The ambition and execution of the big numbers is breathtaking. My favourite film of all time is The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and there are a lot of echoes from that that, in La La Land, from its big song and dance numbers to its message about the ambiguous nature of love. If I were being picky, I would say it drags a little in the middle and could probably be 15 minutes shorter. But having said that, I couldn't think of 15 minutes I'd want to lose. Uh, It would be so easy for this to be a glib, feel-good rom-com, but this film says more... uh, more than that, about the complexity of love, dreams, chance and the choices we make. I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to get funding for this amazing movie, but it gives me hope for cinema musicals that it happened in the end. Can I say something very quickly on that, yeah. on the, the length issue? I interviewed Woody Allen after he'd made Everyone Says I Love You. And, um, and he's, I said, you know, what's it like having made a musical? He said, well, because the, the weird thing is nobody tells you how long they are. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you, you, write the, you write the film, like the usual length, but then when you put all the musical numbers in, it's suddenly it's three hours long. So you end up having to take all this stuff out. 
And um, and it is definitely. I, I don't think La La Land could lose fifteen minutes. And I, to the, the the emailer particularly pointed out, I can't tell you which fifteen minutes to lose. I think the answer is none. I don't think there's fifteen minutes to lose. I think if you shake that film, at the very worst, thirty forty seconds would come out. Um, Gary Brown, I'm writing this with a beaming smile, which has taken up semi-permanent housing on my face <laughs> since seeing this film at the weekend. It was so much more than the performance of the actors, although Gosling and Stone can come and dance in my planetarium at any time. <laughs> the entire production, from the wonderful score and joy- joyful musical numbers to the Battenberg and Beyond colour palette, made for a clinical production aimed at unabashed glee. Battenberg Mission accomplished. Beyond, that's a great phrase. I la-la loved it, said Gary. That would be good for the post. Yeah, I'm, I cannot believe that a... That a journalist hasn't already written I la la loved it because in fact we've all started doing that because in the break I said I'm just off to the la la loo and so it's, it's going to be Ack excuse me all over again time to convince my wife we should go and see it again uh, thank you Gary uh, for that um, Stuart Britton from the opening old Oldie World Cinemascope card I was expecting a love letter to musical cinema I got one albeit rambling and in terrifically bad handwriting <laughs> The film is okay. So who's this from? This is Stuart Britton. Okay, whoever this person is, they're going to be writing for a national newspaper very shortly. The film is okay and is a standard story of dreamers with some singing and dancing thrown in together with a love story. There's even a bullseye, here's what you could have won moment. But I didn't feel lifted enough to float out of the cinema on a cloud of dreams. Okay more than stagger out under the weight of the chocolate I'd just eaten on a carpet of nightmares. La La Land isn't bad, but it's nowhere near as good as it thinks it is. It's a sloppy mess of a song here, bit of a story there, some linking narrative over there, a voila. An Oscar winner? No, not really. Giving the film any award would put everyone in La La Land. Yours from the surveyor's corner. Stuart Britton, he's a okay. surveyor. I I mean, it's a a very well-written letter. I disagree with the... the, um, the, uh, the, the, the substance of the thing but I think it's very well written and very well argued Martin Jameson in Stockport I love Hollywood musicals I love them for their great tunes this has got a big butt coming hasn't it there's a big butt coming in this making tap routines athleticism incredible musical talent Astaire Gene Kelly Ginger Rogers Donald O'Connor Danny Kaye for their wit and storytelling but Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling as a pair of self-obsessed dullard wannabes seriously I don't care about them I especially don't care about Gosling who appears to be little more than a jazz snob I love both of these characters (laughs) but musical stars they're not Stone can sing a bit but Gosling barely at all the score is mediocre substituting proper melodies for a few hooky or hooky, probably, chord changes. And the choreography is unimaginative and underpowered, not much better than a Strictly Come Dancing quarterfinal where the celebrity is still visibly concentrating on getting the steps right. And don't try to tell me that their ordinariness is the whole point. Gosling and Stone are superstars, so that's never going to fly. And the problem with lovingly recreating the look of Golden Age musicals is that without the rock-solid talent at the heart of it, all you're left with is an empty core. It's artifice without artistry. I so wanted to love this film. I have rarely been so disappointed. It may well win a gazillion Oscars, but for me, this is La La Emperor Has No Clothes. Sincerely, Martin. OK. I mean, I, as I said, I feel much more enthusiastically about it than, than you do. I do appreciate that not everybody's going to love it. I also do think that it is a problem um, to which I have just contributed, incidentally, that people will be going in with such, uh, with such high expectations. And there's no question that, that some people will be disappointed. Um, I think in terms of the... No, they're not, they're not Fred and Ginger, nor are they meant to be. As I said before, I think that the joy of the choreography is it takes them just as far as they need to go and no further. Uh, I also think that there is a deliberate 
uh, sense of treading a line between them being stars and them being ordinary people. So I think that does fly rather bit. I mean, I think, for example, that sequence when Emma Stone, who is already a superstar, is doing the audition as somebody who's had coffee spilt in her, so she's having to wear a, you know, a zipped-up anorak, and then she starts doing the thing, and then the person who's doing the audition takes a phone call. I think she, I, in that moment, I didn't think of her as Emma Stone, international superstar. I thought of her as Emma Stone. I thought of her as Mia, character trying to do an audition while some hideous auditiony person takes a takes a phone call. Um, I so it it worked for me. I was able to lose myself in it. Although, I, as I, I keep repeating, I know that ev- with every with every next review of somebody saying it's great, it's really great. Have I told you how great it is? Because it's great. I read a phrase. There was one review that said. The, uh, I felt like I, I got a suntan watching the movie, and I felt like stop. It can't, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna disappoint me, and and it didn't. Uh, Tony Reed, long time listener, many time emailer, but without success. I'm a projectionist and have been for 21 years, working in the cinema industry for 23 years. Do we have a specifically named part of the church yet? Do we? Is there? There must be a projectionist. There pew. must be. They must have their own pew at the very least. Yeah, I mean, Dave Norris will have built one, you know. If it's not there, Norris will come in and build one and he'll give it surround sound and the full... I've got the, the, the plans of the Whittithedral up behind me. OK. I, I don't want to deface it by just writing in projectionist pew. But no, no, I will, I'll I'll get Norris to sort it out because he'll, you know, he handles all, all right. that. So he is, he is officially anyway, a technical advisor. Tony's point is, he said, I just wanted to share my thoughts on La La Land. It is without doubt one of the greatest films that Hollywood has turned out in many a year and will for sure live long in the memory. No sex, no violence, one swear word, love, dreams, conflict, passion, a swirl together masterfully by Damien Chazelle to deliver one of the most uplifting films in many a year. The film is edited within an inch of its life, but rolls along perfectly with Gosling and Stone on absolutely outstanding form. But but hang on, before you go on, crucially, as you, no, hold on, as you said in your uh, interview... It's not edited to within an inch of its life because those entire sequences play out in single takes. If you compare it to, for example, Chicago, which every time somebody's foot hits the floor, there's a cut. Actually, one of the joys of um, La La Land is that it's restrained editing. Carry on. Thank you. Tony continues and then concludes, the last 15 minutes is just perfect as he, instead of, in, in, in the, it just sent shivers up my spine. This film deserves all that's coming to it. Uh, and, I mean, there are loads. I'll just do, just do this one. Nick Dewsbury, 21, BA Film Studies. Having been excited about La La Land for the past six months, I attended a preview screening at Birmingham's Electric Cinema with trepidation, worried that the film might not reach the heights I was hoping for. What do you think? Which way is this going to go? It's going to go, yes, it's good. I need not have worried. Great, La La Land is a joyous and highly commendable film with memorable musical numbers and a surprisingly moving story. Uh, the thing which has stuck with me the most is the gorgeous colour palette of the film, not something that often knocks me flat. Damien Chazelle has proven himself once again to be a superb director and both Mr Gosling and Miss Stone provide some of their best work to date. I intend to see it as soon as possible, again, and would recommend it to absolutely everyone. Can you just do, do, you just do a couple of lines on the colour palette? Yes. Yeah, so, and what that means and what they'll see in this, which they didn't Because basically what the people world. are thinking of is, you know, old school Technicolor with that, you know, uh, the, the greens and yellows and reds and things that really kind of burn off the screen. And certainly in the opening number in which... You know, everyone's piling out of cars and, you know, zooming across the bonnets and across the roofs as if they're kind of like the West Coast cousins of the kids from fame. Um, and it's 
it is an explosion of colour and they're bold primaries. And it's interesting, particularly because one of the things of modern cinema, in fact, we had a discussion about this last year. Somebody wrote and said, if I see another film that's in that sludge brown colour that is now the default that means this is serious stuff is going to happen. I am going to scream. And so what this is, is it's the kind of old school colour, bright primaries that you would see when you went to see a, you know, a big scope presentation back in the heyday of, you know, of, of, of colour cinema for the 40s and 50s. Final word before we actually hear some music. Yes. From this film. Um, from Harry Mallon, first of all, I can't stop singing the La La Land theme. Mm-hmm. Er- earlier, someone in our street was putting on a rucksack and I thought they were initiating a dance number. <laughs> Send help. It's that kind of musical frame of mind. Hang on, he's starting something. And uh, Loreline Van Kappel, possibly Lorelei Van Kappel, but in the signature... But it's a magnificent name, name either way. Dear Seb's Place and Chicken on a Stick, if Wittertainment is a church, then I probably have had a religious experience as I absolutely love this film from the moment the Summit logo stepped back 70 years and gave way to the Cinema Vision logo through to the end credits. Though I'm always one for spontaneous lacrimosity in many films, few have inspired such floods. By the time we get to the final piece of music, I was almost sobbing. Writing about it now, I'm starting to well up. La La Land is easily my favourite of 2016 and will certainly feature in my all-time list. I need to apologise to my neighbours who've had to endure my City of Stars renditions on the piano for the past couple of weeks. So that'll be a little piece of music. I think we're going to just hear a little bit just as we're in the mood. City of Stars Are you shining just for Cut that out, cut that out. You know, it sounds a little bit like, I hadn't noticed this before, all around me are familiar faces. It's a very, very mad world. Donnie Dargo. Don't spoil it. This is the start of something wonderful. Or one more dream. Look, in the control room. Look. But I cannot make it. It's just somebody. You look like you were just, just beaming and lost in this reverie. Quite rightly so. Always oh, nice to have a bit of whistling. John Legend is in it, and there's a big musical number where he sounds a lot like Robert Cray, actually, but that's a nice tune as well. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned Julia McKinnell, uh, who sent in a review from Sydney, mm-hmm. and you said, listening live, wow, and I saw it came in a couple of days ago. But she is listening live. Simon and Mark, I am listening live. Hey! It's currently 27 degrees in Australia at two in the morning. Or winter, as they call too it. Too darn hot. Can Australia have some of your snow? <laughs> All right. Julia, thanks okay. for listening. Anyway, thank you very much, Steve, for the email. If there's time, we'll get back. We could fill the whole show with, uh, with La La Land. But I should do some other films. There are other matters to attend to. What else is out? Let's do Live By Night. Um, so, Ben Affleck. So I met Ben. Pardon I me? think people know exactly what you're going to say because do they? Went, because because it went like this. So live by night. Okay. Well, don't necessarily prejudge. So um, Casey Affleck is currently, you know, garnering huge critical plaudits and everything yes. for uh, Manchester by the Sea, which we're going to uh, review after half past. So this is Ben Affleck uh, in an adaptation of the novel by Dennis Lehane, whose work, of course, provided the basis of Gone Baby Gone, in which Ben directed Casey Affleck in the end. Um, uh, also, he wrote uh, Shutter Island and Mystic River. 
So uh, Affleck stars as Joe Coughlin, who is this uh, petty hood in Prohibition-era uh, Boston. He's the son of a police chief, played by Brendan Gleeson. He's having an affair with uh, Emma Gould, who's played by Sienna Miller, who is the girlfriend, the mole, of uh, Robert Glenister's gangster, Albert White. And uh, Affleck's character at the beginning is just somebody who, you know, is into uh, robs, robbings and hold-ups, and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want anything to do with the gang world. He's basically the opposite. He's, he's into robbing. He's into robbings. <laughs> um, and so he's the opposite of Ray Liotta in Goodfellas, you know, all his life. Robbings he, is a... Robbings is a great. You can get robbings at an airplane station. <laughs> and... Um, so he's the opposite of, uh, of Rayleigh Otter in, in Goodfellas. He never wanted to be a gangster. And he's approached by the Pescatori, head of the Pescatori family, saying, come and work for me. He says, no, I don't want to be a gangster. However, because of the way in which his life is tied up with, uh, you know, he's having an affair with somebody's mole and his father is thing. So things go bad. He ends up in Florida being exactly the thing that he didn't want to be. And uh, he starts building his own empire for the Pescatories. Uh, and... Whilst he's there, he's happy to work with everybody, with the African-Americans, with the Italians, with the um, uh, with, he's Irish himself. And he has this sort of multicultural melting pot of people who are working for him in the rum business. And he finds himself up against the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, who want to shut him down for reasons which are fairly obvious. Here's a clip. We're hoping you can talk some sense into ID Pro. Ain't too many people ever had much success doing that. We'd like you to try. And what would the reason be? His self-preservation. He needs to stop shooting up my clubs. Clubs? What kind of clubs? Bridge clubs? Because I belong to the Greater Tampa Rotary Club myself, and I don't recall ever seeing you. Look, do you think that we got where we are by letting some inbred muscle us? If that's who you think we are, you're making a fatal miscalculation, son. Because we're clerks and bankers and police officers and deputies. Yeah, we even got a judge. You dumb enough to fight us? We're gonna rain bloody hellfire down on you and all you love. So you're threatening me with people who are more powerful than you? Exactly. What am I talking to you for? So you get a sense from that of the kind of movie that it is. And there are some really strong performances. Matthew Mayer, who didn't hear in that clip, who plays um, R.D. Pruitt, is really good and really scary as the uh, racist loose cannon who becomes our anti-hero's uh, nemesis. Also, Chris Cooper is the sheriff. I mean, I, I don't think he's ever given a bad performance in his life. Uh, El Fanning's his daughter, um, about whom he cares more than anything and who becomes the centre of a strange subplot which then blossoms in ways that you don't fully expect. So there is a lot of, you know, remarkable talent, both in front of and behind the camera. The problem then is that it's a fairly unremarkable film. It's not a bad film and it's had some very, very stinky reviews. Um, and I, I wonder again whether this is something to do, as I was talking before about the problems of talking up La La Land, is that you know, people's expectations become very high and then it will disappoint. And it is possible, I confess, that I went into Live By Night having known that the critical whiff was not good and then was pleasantly surprised by the fact that it was all right. But I do think that we can agree that when you consider, you know, Affleck and Argo and when you consider Dennis Lehan's, uh, um you know, track record and when you look at the cast and the really solid sterling work they've done in the past you could be forgiven for expecting it to be something more than that. It does often sort of allude to films 
which it is not as good as. So obviously there's, you know, there's, there's some of the Godfather in the background. There's some of Scarface in the background. There are hints of public enemy in the background. And whenever you think about those films, the film, this doesn't quite live up to it. And I was trying to figure out what it was that made it seem somewhat inert. I think it's this. At the very beginning, you get artificial scratchings on the film. You know, it's a digital projection, but the film looks it looks scratched to give it kind of a, a, the patina of age. And there is something about it that does seem fake. It does seem like there's not enough dirt under its fingernails. There's not enough grit in its in its bloodstream. There's not. It's it's almost despite the fact that it's it's quite violent in places and it has a fairly sort of nihilistic narrative. Um, it never felt that it got beyond its style. It never felt that it wanted to really, you know, get its hands dirty with the subject matter. But that said, there are things in it that work perfectly adequate. I was never bored, and it's not a short film. I've never found myself being bored or, you know, not interested in the story. There are elements of it that are very broad. Um, you know, Sienna Miller's character is played with very broad strokes. I think, incidentally, she's a very fine actress nowadays, but the character is, is fairly broadly played. Um, and there are times when you feel that Ben Affleck is sort of falling into that Robert De Niro in Havana mode, that he's, you know, that he he's playing a movie star playing somebody rather than actually playing them which is odd because in the past i haven't felt that but i feel like i do think Affleck is a perfectly fine actor and obviously a very good filmmaker so it's not great but it's not bad and if it was if it had been if it wasn't made by a bunch of people whose names are so celebrated and who have done such impressive work in the past you'd probably look more fondly on it it's fine, but no more than fine. You were talking beforehand about the pesky Tories. Where did the, the... pesky? The pesky. The, the, that's right. The well, pesky Tories and the annoying Labour's. No, pesky Tories. The pesky Tory family. The pesky Tory family. Yes. Did oh, you I... actually think I said the pesky Tories? No, but it did sound like it was funny. Okay. I thought the old truck was coming to the surface. That's right. Yes. You know what? Well, you can blame it. Pesky Tories said, "Look, you know, go." Go to Florida and run an illegal rum importing business. That's what we have to That's do. That's what they did. Uh, somebody's got a dossier on that somewhere. Almost, uh, Almost certainly. Michael Gove must be looking for something yeah, to it's do. It's OK, Maybe but I've got envelopes that. full, envelopes full of paper. Is, is there a problem? Because I saw the poster for, uh, for, for this movie. Yeah. And to see ben. Uh, ben with a gun again, you think, oh, is this another accountant? movie because that was only a couple of months ago that we were talking to Ben about him okay I don't know that that's the problem but I have to say that poster makes me wince because that poster is the poster of him sitting in the white suit with the thing and you just go that's the best you could come up with it's because that poster look it's so derivative it's so hackneyed it, and if there are times that the film almost seems to be tipping over into pastiche, and that poster does it no favours at all. Stephen Wallacey, on an email... Designed the poster. No, no he didn't. <laughs> okay. I, was listen- Sorry. I, I was listening to Wake Up To Money on Five Live this week. I hear that Snapchat are moving their international HQ to London. Can you please tell me how they're going to do this? It's a very good question, which we'll just leave hanging, I think. And Rupert Maidley, on an email, I thought, Mark and Simon, you'd appreciate this start to a morning assembly at St Oswald's Primary School... In, in Geisley. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Mr. Maitley. Good morning, everyone. And hello to Jason Isaacs. Now that, you have to say, is a class school. That is a class school. Mr. Maidley, class teacher, the children of St. Oswald's Primary School, 
classy kids. Classy, classy. They'll classy. be lining up to get their kids to go into there. That's very good. Thank you. That's, that's, a, very, that's a proper it's bordering on indoctrination, but it's uh... yeah, that's true. But but when you think about it, isn't that what assembly is for? Yes, exactly. That's it, exactly you what it's for. Did you ever do hymn practice? Yeah, we did hymn practice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. Now they say hello to Jason. <laughs> I think things are getting better. TV movie of the week. David Percy says, I would choose Blue Ruin for its brooding performances and ratcheting tension, not to mention that scene with the knife and the tyre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark will choose Run, uh, Run Silent, Run, Run Deep. Deep because it ticks the boxes of being an obscure movie that Simon should have seen but hasn't and being on a slightly offbeat channel. It has a risk of not being selected because it's on at a sensible time. <laughs> Gareth Ellis. For me, it's Blue Ruin, an understated and gripping take on the revenge movie with a great lead performance from... Uh, how do you pronounce that? Jeremy Saulnier. No. Macon Blair. Oh, Macon Blair. Yeah, Macon Blair. It is Macon. I, always, I can never remember whether it's Macon or Macon. I think he's Macon. I may be wrong. Did we, didn't we have this conversation at the time? We did. And what did I say? I can't remember. Okay, then neither can I. You say make and I say Mac and I the whole thing off. Mark will go for this as well. It would make a great double bill with director Jeremy Solnier's other recent film, Green Room. Mm. Just don't choose The Place Beyond the Pines. What a load of tripe that was. Matt Todd, Place Beyond the Pines for me. (laughs) Rupert Bath, King of Comedy. Mark goes on about enough times and in fairness probably not that many people have seen it who should although it depends if mark is still cross and angry and still sulking with de niro over dirty grandpa andy grinnell it's surely a racing certainty mark will choose king of comedy for myself i'd quite like to see the english patient again having not seen it since the original release phil harper says after being left disturbed by green room uh, i'm thoroughly looking forward to blue ruin mark will choose king of comedy because it's king of comedy yeah so uh, what is our TV movie of the week? King of Comedy, King of Comedy. because it's King of Comedy. Also because Silence is uh, in cinemas at the moment. And I said when we were just doing that uh, conversation, because we had some emails about Silence, that although I think it's an important film, it's not it's not um, uh, Scorsese's best. Like, it's not King of Comedy. And I said, I'm not being factious about that. I genuinely think that's his best film, his best made film. And I'm sure most people have seen it. But if you haven't, you do. It's, you know, it's the next stage after you know mean streets and taxi driver it certainly takes that travis bickle thing somewhere you don't expect and it's just brilliant it's just brilliant and jerry lewis is unbelievably good in it and robert de niro is unrecognizable in it and uh sondra bernard i think has never been better and it's got an absolutely brilliant script and it's funny in a not funny way what does that mean it means you sort of wince because the point is he's a comedian who, 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 you know, decides that the only way that he's going to get onto television is to kidnap his favourite TV. And when, when can I see that? You can see that, Simon, uh, on... It's 1am oh, on Saturday the 14th on Film 4. OK. Or uh, you can set your recording device. Benjamin Massey. Yes. Uh, 35mm projection is 2003 to 2008. I've been a listener for several years. Last year, converted my girlfriend to the church. We both now listen to the show while cycling to work. Very much enjoy our chats in the evening about what we should see at the pictures that week. For this year, my New Year's resolution is to watch more films that everyone should have seen. So what better way than to watch each and every one of Mark's TV movies movies of the week? Oh, wow, OK. Only slight issue is that we're both terrified of horror because the real world is scary enough at the moment. So if Mark could please avoid all of these 
for 2017, that would be great. I was relieved that The Babadook was chosen at the back end of last year, so I don't have to watch that. Okay. As for this week, I haven't seen King of Comedy or Sexy Beast, so either of these would be superb. Tinkety Tonk, Old Fruit, and so on. I love the fact that has now become our official sign-off. And Down with the Nazis. Well, who knows? It may well be quite appropriate. And just on uh, Live by Night, before we move on to Manchester by the Sea, Simon Oxlade... Affleck says uh, this, I had high hopes but left feeling disappointed with this long and languid crime This is for Live By Night, yeah? Yes, that wants to be a sweeping epic but doesn't actually sweep and lacks any form of narrative propulsion. Affleck, Forty's leading man, looks notwithstanding, is not good enough through a combination of script and acting to make us care for Joe as a character. We're constantly reminded that he's a good man, forced to do bad things, but all we see on the screen is a bad man doing bad Bad things. things. (laughs) He may feel bad about doing them, but Joe is just too thin a character to give a hoot about him. It's a two-hour movie that seems to run three hours. We have a terrific car chase and an excellent hotel gunfight, but this is held up with a lot of... Uh, tell not show voiceover and a couple of characters in particular Chris Coopers and Ellen Fannings who are given very short change from the film despite being the most I think yeah but I think Cooper is brilliant in that I think that even though he's not on screen that much every moment that he is counts I mean I he's just never bad he is the most reliably good actor I can think of off the top of my head right now this second. Uh, and Simon concludes very handsome to look at with a fine eye for period detail but hurt badly by a poor lead by the poor lead role and odd structure also by the distracting sight of Affleck surrounded by his gang and being a full foot taller and wider than his heavies. Anyway, <laughs> all in all I'd give it a miss. Anyway, uh, most of the correspondence to the show about La La Land followed by Manchester, Manchester by, by the, the sea. sea. So Manchester by the Sea is the third feature by Kenneth Lonergan um, and Ken Lonergan made You Can Count On Me back in 2000, which was a Sundance Festival favourite and got great reviews and a couple of Oscar nominations. And then he's a playwright. Uh, he was best known originally as a playwright. And he'd, he got, um, uh, he's got screenwriting credit on Analyze This. And uh, he made You Can Count On Me on, you know, absolutely under his own terms. And people said, wow, the guy's a genius. And I like You Can Count On Me, not as much as some others, but I liked it. Then there was Margaret. He shot Margaret in 2005. And it then went into post-production hell for six years of fighting and uh, trying to get it finished and trying to edit it and uh, lawsuits. And one thing or another, the film finally came out in 2011 in a version which, I have to say, still looked unfinished. It still looked like a work in progress. There were lots of stories about Scorsese being brought in to help finish the film. It had some great performances and it had some strong elements, but it was... yeah. So when uh, Manchester by the Sea came out, it, the feeling for me was, OK, come on, now demonstrate that you are the great genius that everybody says you are. And with a, with a couple of false steps aside, this is the one. This is the one that goes, OK, this guy does know how to make a film and he does know how to, you know, how, how to tell a story. So the story is uh, Casey Affleck plays uh, this uh, janitor who is uh, working uh, in a suburb of Boston and is incredibly uh, withdrawn. Uh, He's called Lee. We see him dealing with everybody's plumbing, but he won't be friendly. Somebody says to him, you don't say hello, you're not friendly, you don't smile at them. There is obviously some terrible baggage uh, in his past that he is carrying with him. Um, and we see him go to a bar one night. He won't talk to anybody. People try to start him in conversation, but what he will do is later on in the evening, having been drinking alone, he gets into a fight and starts punching people. So there is like this kind of silent scream of rage inside him. He then gets a phone call that says his brother has collapsed in Manchester by the sea and he needs to go back to the hometown, a place where obviously dark, you know, something something in the past is waiting for him. And when he gets to Manchester, he discovers that he is now going to have to look after his nephew, 
um, despite the fact that he has essentially severed all emotional ties with everyone around him and is living an isolated existence. I don't understand. Which uh, part are you having trouble with? Well, I can't be his guardian. Well, uh... I mean, I can't. Well, naturally, I, I assumed Joe had discussed all this with you. No. He didn't. No. Uh, I, I, sorry, I have to say I'm somewhat taken aback. He can't live with me. I live in one room. <laughs> well, but Joe has provided for Patrick's upkeep. Food, clothes, etc. And the house and the boat are owned outright. I can't commute from Boston every day until he turns 18. I think the idea was that you would relocate. Re relocate to where? Well, if you yeah. look, it's it, well, as you can see, you know, your brother worked everything out extremely carefully. Uh, but he can't have, yes, can't uh, have meant that. So basically, he finds himself in a circumstance in which he is being dragged back into the past, dragged back to the town which he has left, dragged back to being intimately connected with people having withdrawn from the world. One of the great strengths of the film is that Ben Affleck, uh, I beg your pardon, Casey Affleck, because uh, we were talking about Ben Affleck just earlier on, does one of the most impressive portrayals of isolation and withdrawal I can remember. When you try, when you play characters who are sort of isolated and withdrawn, too often people just do that thing about, you know, they, they look away or they blank stares. What Casey Affleck does is to give you a sense that Lee is absolutely a, a kind of a deadpan calm surface with something raging, broiling just beneath the surface. And it's to do with tiny physical gestures. It's to do with the way in which he hunches his shoulders. It's to do with this almost imperceptible pursing of the lips and this strange display of his teeth. It's to do with the way in which his eyes dart around the room. And it's a really impressive performance. I mean, it is really, really good. And what the film then does is it divides its time between the modern day stuff in which he's having to go back to Manchester with the sea, he's having to deal with his estranged wife, he's having to deal with Joe's estranged wife, he's having to deal with this teenager who he you know, knew and loved as a kid, but from whom he has apparently become estranged and who now appears to be himself a rather difficult, selfish teenager who is obsessed only with his own libido and his own life. Imagine that. Imagine that. And these scenes are juxtaposed against scenes of his old life, of his life uh, with his wife before, played by Michelle Williams, in which he's completely the opposite, in which he's garrulously outgoing, in which he's almost sort of boorishly drunken and full of bonhomie, and he's, oh, friends, yeah. And these two separate timelines are juxtaposed against each other and you get the sense that they are going to meet in you know whatever it is the dark secret that's kind of hiding in the in the back of the film which you have some you have some sense of what it is i mean obviously he's become estranged from his wife and how has that happened um but the way in which affleck's performance negotiates the difference between those two parts of the character's life is really really beautifully done the poster, I have to say, shows you Michelle Williams and Casey Affleck and suggests that the film will actually be about their relationship. In fact, one of the, the flaws of it for me is that she is rather sidelined and what that means is that when you get certain confrontations in the drama, I actually wanted to know more about her character. I wanted to know more about what happened to her character. I wanted more of what I thought, to some extent, the film was being sold by in that poster. And so I ended up thinking something which I almost never think, which was, I wish this film was half an hour longer. 
And I never say that. I mean, you know this. I never say that. Yeah. I, I actually wanted there to be more fleshing that out. There is another false step, which I, I, I think is important, which is that there is a central sequence, which is a really, really important sequence about the character's emotional life and about how they've got to where they are now and how they got from where they were. And it's uh, a very, very well-orchestrated sequence, and it's really powerful, except for the fact that um, Kenneth Lonergan has decided to accompany it with Albinoni's Adagio in G minor. Oh. And the problem with that is Albinoni's Adagio in G minor has been overused so much in popular entertainment that when it turns up, it's distracting. Um I have to say, to, to give him his credit, he did say in an interview that he, originally he put it on as a temp track, just a temporary piece of music, and he was always intending to replace it. And then he just thought, it works so well, I can't replace it. And it may be that not everyone has the same, but for me, as the minute I hear that piece of music, I think Butterflies, Wendy Craig, I think Rollerball, I think Gallipoli, I think Simon Mayo's Confessions on Radio 2. I do use that every day. And the reason you use it is because it's a, it has now become a cliche. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like a, particularly in a film which was so much to do with nuance. I mean, when I was talking about Casey Affleck's performance, I was saying so much of it is to do with tiny gestures that it just seemed like a, like a trowel-like thing to just lay on this piece of music, which, you know, is a brilliant and superb piece of music, but is overused in popular entertainment. No two ways about it. And Lonergan knows that. And he knew it when he decided to keep the piece of music on. And it may be that it's not a problem for everybody. For me, it was like the sound of a ship docking in the back, and I found that very, very distracting. It, it says something about how good the film is that it didn't derail it completely for me. Because actually, the minute that that piece of music was gone, I was back into the, you know, the emotion of the film. And, and I thought that it had... It has a chilly look. It's set, it has a wintry setting. I mean, it's frosty. It's not just his character that's frosty. There's snow on the ground. There's ice in the air. There is ice in the relationships between the characters that you hope may thaw. It's a film which also has a certain degree of um, black comedy about it. It's a film which is very much about the incidental details of life being the things which are important and defining. At some of its most harrowing moments... Everything is reduced to bureaucracy and pen pushing and people struggling with doors and things which are so unbelievably mundane. And this is something that Lonergan does brilliantly. He absolutely has an, an eye for the mundane details. So overall, it's the piece of work that demonstrates that he is as good as everybody thinks he is. I don't think it's perfect. And... I, you know, as I said, that music choice and the the absence for me of more of Michelle Williams' character, those are missteps. But those are, in the end, incidental missteps that do not take away from the fact that it is a very powerful film about an isolated man, brilliantly played by Casey Affleck, and directed with genu with a genuine cinematic feeling by Kenneth Lonergan, about whom I am now okay. Yeah, he is good. 
Jesse DeFranco on an email. What makes Manchester by the Sea so unforgettable is the way it approaches grief and regret with pinpoint accuracy. Although most people won't be able to relate to Lee's predicament, Casey Affleck plays him in a way that seems almost uncomfortably familiar. It's that feeling of knowing you made a horrible mistake and can never go back. He walks around town with a quiet, eerie glow of a man who blames himself for everything. To call Manchester by the Sea haunting would be an understatement. It's a movie that stays with you long after it's finished and almost brings to mind own, your own personal grief. By the end, it's as if we've spent time grieving alongside these characters. What I found most interesting was the inability to communicate that the characters struggled with in this movie. So many scenes are of people trying to describe how they feel, but are unable to find the right words. Yeah. Uh, Sophie in London, given the very subdued trailer for the film, I didn't go in expecting much, perhaps a peaceful, slow drama which would pass a couple of hours. What I experienced instead was a heartbreaking, tragic gut punch of a film which left me thinking about it for days, if not weeks, afterwards. I saw it on a Sunday morning during the London Film Festival and whilst I might have had hangover-adjusted lacrimosity syndrome, this film made uh, made me and the rest of the auditorium choke back the tears. If there was such a thing as a six-cry test, then I just passed it. It was also very, very funny. It passed the more enjoyable six-laugh test twice over and showed us that even, the ble- even in the bleakest of times, humour can be found. Yeah. Luke Jones, it was refreshing to know so little about the film going in, apart from the early Oscar buzz for Affleck. The film's power comes from its juxtaposition of comedy and tragedy, with many of its most emotional scenes undercut with a sense of the absurd. This helps to ground the film's contrivances and leavens what otherwise could have been a depressing series of unfortunate events. The cast is uniformly excellent. Affleck will get the plaudits, but Michelle Williams delivers another beautifully devastating She is great. I just I wanted more. One final one. Uh, Robert Benson, I was really impressed by this film, especially with Affleck's performance, and that the flashbacks to the time always managed to stay interesting and fresh. I cared about all the characters and wanted to know what happened to them, obviously a necessity due to the film's length, as it could have easily started feeling tedious otherwise. Uh, all All in all, I thought it was a terrific piece of work, and most importantly, I was never bored, which can often happen with a film that takes its time. Absolutely. Thank you, Rob, who's in Freiburg in Germany. Uh, 5-2, what else do you want to mention? Uh, let's do uh, young, The Young Offenders, written and directed by Peter Foote, inspired by um, news stories of a real-life seizure of one and a half tonnes of cocaine off the Irish coast in uh, 2007. So the story is basically of two young chances, Alex Mur- uh, Murphy and Chris Wally play Conor McSweeney, who is our narrator, and uh, Jock Murphy. Um, Jock is a legendary bicycle thief who has got a had a mask made up of a local thug called Billy. So he goes around stealing bikes with the mask on of this other person to get the other guy into trouble. Connor thinks that Jock is basically brilliant. And he basically wants to be... He just thinks he's the most brilliant thing, which is very, very depressing to his mum, who thinks that Jock is basically a wastrel. Uh, brilliantly played instantly by uh, Hilary Rose. They have small lives, but very, very big dreams. Uh, here's a clip from very early on in the film. Imagine if we'd a million euros. What would you like to do? Think of something, think of something. What would you like to do? But no, like, what's, what's the budget? One million? You just said it. I... Do you want me to choose, like, an activity or, like, an object? Whatever but... you want to do, just pick something, I mate. don't know, like, skydiving. Grand? No bother, you can go skydiving. You can, I'll, I'll get your plane and a parachute, and you can skydive all the time, whenever you want. Ah. Where'd you like to live? Mansion. Mansion? Grand, not a bother. We live in the city hall. Uh, well, Lord Mayor lives there, like. Well, yeah, we won't, we won't actually live in the city hall, but we make a gaff just like the city hall, you know what I mean? Looking over the city, Big right? mansion, looking over the city. We need a butler, or Yeah, to clean the house, yeah, we get one of them fellas, like. Batman. Yeah, well, he could run, he could run the gaff with his like, English accent, but it'd be unbelievable, oh, right? Imagine waking up to that every morning. Yeah, wait. <laughs> right. What? Wait. What's that, dude? <laughs> wait, what? 
What you want for breakfast? You wish I'd tea, son. <laughs> Whatever we went. Sounds amazing. Are they making that up? That sounds like improv. Isn't, to isn't me. it wonderful? So, so here's what happened. I didn't know anything about this film. Before. The rest of the story then is that there is a there, there is a, a seizure of drugs, that, and the story is that they've all been thrown over the side of the boat. So people are rushing to the beach to go and try and find one of these bags that will make them you know, money. And our heroes, antiheroes, then steal bikes to go off and attempt to go. That's the plot. Um, so there's a bit of whiskey galore in there, and uh, you know some other other movies that come to mind. But essentially, I, I saw this. I didn't know anything about it. It was the last screening on Tuesday, and it was a fairly small screening, and I had no expectations whatsoever. And that scene is at the very beginning, and I started laughing, and then I laughed consistently all the way through. I thought it was lovely. It reminded me, to some extent, of uh, Adam and Paul, you know, the Lenny Abramson movie, which was very much like kind of Samuel Beckett, Laurel and Hardy. And this is much more in the the, the comedy setting, much less of a sort of dark underlying tragedy than the Abramson. But there is an observational edge to it, which I think is very much like Adam and Paul. I thought the two lead performers were terrific. I, I just thought that the way in which they did that kind of hapless male bonding thing was really well observed, funny beautifully deadpan uh, direction and beautifully deadpan performances, even as the drama, you know, starts to cycle out of control and spiral out of control and become, you know, tip over into uh, the ridiculous. There are some lovely moments of pathos as well. When one of our young heroes says to his mother, look, say something nice about me. Say, say, Say something nice about me. She says something and he goes... That's very vague. Can you not say something more specific? I mean, it was... It's touching and tender and really funny and really charming and and a, a treat, I have to say, in a week to know nothing about a movie and go in and enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, so, uh, our movie of the week, please. Well, it's La La Lovely, isn't it? It's La La. It's delightful. It's delicious. It's the La La Land. So that was our first show of the year. How do you think it went? Uh, I think we were quite spiffing. Spiffing. I think so. But here... Shall we try and use that word more often? Spiffing. Yes. Where did that come? What would be the derivation of spiffing? I mean, obviously, it's kind of like REF banter, is that kind of thing. It's like yeah. it's from the same period as Tinkety Tonk old fruit. Yes, with the Nazis. and also Tiffin. Yeah, I've got no idea. Is it carry on up the Kyber. Well, tiffin. We do t- it's not Tiffin time. Any time is Tiffin time. Is that carry on up the Kyber? T- and is Tiffin spiffing in general? No, no. Tiffin um, in in carry on up the Kyber is tea, isn't it? They have Tiffin. But Tiffin t- time. Tiffin could be spiffing. Could actually. Yeah, but also tiffin. because it's it's Sid James Tiffin. Does he doesn't mean tea? What he means is Tarara Bumdier. <laughs> Is she in it as well? She is. Tarara is in it, and along with. It's a lovely email from Anne James um, because we've got so much correspondence about La La Land. Apologies if you sent some stuff in and didn't get on, but you know that's most of it. Anne says, "Dear best show on the radio," and but frankly, anything that starts like that is it's is getting on read at some stage. Yeah. Because we want to be absolutely clear, we are totally swayable by just praise, praise, yeah, yeah, money and cash, yes, and free meals, yeah. Please can and mark- tickets. Free tickets to the cinema. To the cinema that one of us got, but the other one didn't. First class flights and things like that, cruises. Please can Mark let us know if La La Land would be suitable. And usually when we get these kind of emails, you know where it's heading because, you know, the concerns about, you know, taking uh, someone who's maybe too young to go and see a movie. Yeah. Can Mark let us know if La La Land would be suitable for my 91-year-old father? It's being spoken of as a modern take on an old-fashioned musical, and he loved those, being a fan of Fred Astaire. However, he will not want to see any of that sort of thing, (laughs) and he won't want to be doing with any of that. 
Also being <laughs> being 91 and feeling fully entitled to do whatever he wants, yes. he will break the code if he sees something that he doesn't approve of. Okay. So the question is, is there any of that sort of thing? No. And might he feel as though he doesn't want to be doing with any of that? No. That's actually one of the great joys of La La Land is that it has... But the, there, they have... There are... There's kissing. Yeah. But it doesn't... And they kind of hang out together in the same bed. Yes, but there's not... There's, there's, there's not a There's not a rumpy scene. No. <laughs> so we think... There, but there is one use of a rude word. Hang on, let me go... Let me there, just... It is... It's almost as... And it stands out because it's, they put it in because they didn't want to be a U certificate. Hang on, let me just see what the, uh, what the good old BBFC say in their advice. I think it is just the one rude word. I... I, I think it is, but then I'm, you know, I, I often go and see films and I say, I say, you know, it is just the one rude word. Then somebody says, what about that scene of intense cannibalism? And I go, oh, yeah, sorry, I'd forgotten about that. So let me just... And now check. a man looks something up on the internet. No, I'm sorry, but you brought it up and it is... Okay, so here we go. Cut. This work was passed uncut and here are the... Here's the information. La La Land is a musical comedy about the relationship between a jazz musician and an aspiring playwright. Well, an, an actress. Um... There is infrequent use of strong language. I think that no, means there once. Yeah. I don't think so. What? There is one. Is there? Yeah, there is one. It's infrequent, not frequent, by the way. That's what I said. There is infrequent use. There is infrequent use of one, as well as milder bad language. There is also a middle finger gesture. That's exactly <laughs> what Anne is going on about. That's that kind of thing. No, I thought when she said that kind of thing, she meant that kind of thing. Well, it, it might be that he he Is doesn't want be- he doesn't want to see any of that. Uh, That's the old Nor- Benny Hill Norton, joke, isn't it? But also, I didn't realise there was there was that amount of cussing. Cussing. Really. No, I, well, I mean, I, it didn't strike. I don't me. think I don't think you'll notice it because the, the standard Lee Child thing. So Lee Child writes the Jack Reacher books. Yes, right? I know, and he says that. If you if he was to write dialogue the way a character like Jack Reacher would talk, it would be full of effing and jeffing, right? Which has now become a standard <laughs> phrase in our house, by the way. Thanks to you, thanks to you. So he tends to not put any in at all. Okay. And then if you if there's one, it or really two, stands it out. Really jumps out. Yeah. So you might as well just either fill it or have none of it. Yeah. No, I agree. I I, I agree. Um. So I th- so what should Anne do with her ninety one year old dad? Well, it's it's you know there oh, is uh, there is infrequent use of strong language. There really isn't any of that. That kind of there's thing. a little of this, but there's not much of that. What about the other? There's a bit of the other. <laughs> but sorry, the All thing right. I was going to say before was that there is that Benny Hill sketch in which, which was one of the funniest Benny Hill jokes of all time, which he's reading. He's the announcer, and he says, you know, and now on a radio, whatever it is, from singer songwriter Diddley Bong and their hit single, what's this thing called love? Oh, no, I'm sorry, what's this thing called love? <laughs> Okay, that is that is funny. That is funny. I never used to find Benny Hill very no, funny ever. No, I know because it was reprehensible nonsense. But on the other hand, that joke was funny. By the way, plus Ernie, the fastest milk cart in the West, is masterful. No, swooning at the macaroons. He's swooning. Well, yeah. Fair enough. But let's not play it. You can hear the hoofbeat sound. No, they raced across the ground. Did you know that Rory Kethlin Jones, uh, the tech correspondent, his son Adam is getting married? I didn't know that. The congratulations. So congratulations. Uh, and Rory, Rory says, this Saturday, to our great joy, they're getting married in Richmond Park. Oh, uh, And it, we should say that it was Adam who emailed the show about Lytotes and, our, oh. and your frequent use of... Lytotes. Yes. A, a film uh, not without its Not flaws. without its flaws. Yes. Anyway, so Rory says, it'd be fabulous if you could give them a wass-up and wish them many happy years of movie-going. 
Oh, and let them know that marriage, whilst not without flaws, <laughs> like toties, is a wonderful thing and everything will be all right in the end. So, Very good. Uh, all the best to them. Um, before you do, do you work? I've got, a f- I've got an interesting, possibly the most outrageous code-breaking offence ever. Yeah. Which either goes before or after your review of underpants. Well, do you want to do... Can I do my review of un- you, uh, underpants and then we'll, we'll first. finish with a humorous email from New Zealand? Okay, fine. So when uh, when Simon says uh, underpants, what he actually means is underworld, uh, blood wars, which is uh, let, me, let me just get to my notes on it. Thank you very much. You have got notes? I just thought you made the whole. I thing. do make the whole thing up, literally as I'm going on. That's why I make so many mistakes. So uh, underworld blood wars, which is I think the fifth instalment. I think I might be wrong. Um, apparently, originally being conceived as a reboot, but then ended up being a sequel. So fans of the Underworld movies do know exactly what they're going to get with Underworld movies. You're going to get Kate Beckinsale in that, you know, in the in the black PVC, kicking lichen butt, whilst uh, vampires and werewolves and stuff... She's very good at it. Yeah, she is. Uh, you know, have sort of ongoing rivalries. And this is very much uh, more of the same. Um uh, the plot is that she is her Celine. Uh, she has a daughter from whom she's estranged. Doesn't want to know where the da- doesn't know where the daughter is and is not meant to know where the daughter is. However, everybody in a very Twilight-inspired twist, incidentally, everybody wants the blood of the daughter, which has special powers. It's clip. You are an extremely difficult person to keep track of. Stop tracking me. I'm not tracking you. I'm looking for Eve. I'm the very last person who could help you find my daughter. Celine, listen to me. The lichens are moving again. No, this is different. They're organised. They have a new leader. His name is Marius. I'm finished with this war. Well, it's not finished with you. They could have killed you. But clearly their mission was to capture you. Your daughter's blood. It's a prize. And if they find her, if they use it, Marius's power will be limitless. Well, then I hope she remains lost. My favourite line in that is, you're very hard to keep track of. Stop tracking me! It's like, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't do that then. Um, so, you know, you get exactly what you'd expect from all the elements. And I won't lie and say that I've kept up with the plot, although I have seen all the Underworld films. I There's a there's a, a thing at the beginning in which Kate Beckinsale basically explains the plot so far. And it, to some extent, it's water off a duck's back for me. Um, however, efficiently directed by Anna Foerster, who has a... Uh, a background in cinematography and VFX and there's you know, there's a need for that in this series and handles it all uh, very well and there are some fun performances Charles Dance particularly enjoys chewing the scenery and I mean I, I'm a huge fan of Charles Dance anyway but Charles Dance is definitely if you want somebody to come on and do a sort of small but significant cameo role Tiny Dancer Tiny Dancer That's what you need. Small and significant Small and I see you <laughs> I'll never be able to listen to Elton John ever again without thinking of Charles Dance holding me closer. Uh, anyway, um, so there are some sort of, you know, some some solid cameo performances. But the most important thing about it is I find Kate Beckinsale very impressive. Uh, she was just last year in Love and Friendship, which is the Whit Stillman film, uh, you know, adapted from the early novella uh, unpublished originally by uh, Jane Austen. And uh, based on Lady Susan, but taking its title from uh, Love and Friendship. And she is just brilliant in it. She's so funny and so smart and so completely in control of the material. And how lovely to be reminded that on the one hand, she has that string to her bow. And on the other hand, she has this ongoing, you know, action uh, fancy franchise, which she pretty much holds together, which is something which is built around her character, absolutely, and which she does really well. Um, It's not everybody's uh, taste, and certainly this isn't going to win over any new fans. Uh, If you haven't seen the other ones, I don't think you're going to be sort of drawn along to see this, but 
I think good for Kate Beckinsale. There was no point in it when uh, when I got bored. Uh, I didn't understand what was going on a lot of the time, but I kind of enjoyed the silly pantomimeness of it. And I thought Beckinsale was terrific, and I love Charles Dance. And it's you know it doesn't it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but it was perfectly fine. DVD of the week, obviously yes. on the way in a second. First of all, though, uh, David Mangan. In mm-hmm. relation to Stephen, uh, I'm emailing you to let you know about the worst code-breaking violation I have ever experienced. Okay. The offence occurred during a recent holiday to New Zealand to spend the festive period with our family. Part of our trip was a week-long stay, and we've edited this and made it slightly more obscure. Okay. Not that I think we could ever get more obscure by someone in New Zealand because we're not governed by New Zealand law. No, <laughs> you became fantastically petulant. Don't, New Zealand don't law, fling your have... laws at us. Anyway, aren't their laws anyway? Our laws sort of j- just changed because well, they're colonial. Colonialists with a different accent. Anyway, part of our trip was a week-long stay in a magnificent little town mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Southern Alps. Within this town is a wonderfully quirky picture house. The main screen holds only a hundred people and they stop the film halfway through to sell you freshly baked homemade cookies. You can also choose to watch the film from the comfort of a sofa or from the inside of an old car that happens to be inside the room. <laughs> really? There's a, there's a restaurant near us that's got a, that's got a, a, a de chevaux. Of course. In it. Of course. It's a French restaurant. Yes. And de chevaux is French. One ra- two horses, apparently. David Mangan continues. <laughs> One rainy day, we decided to... Imagine that. Anyone who's seen the piano, imagine that. You're in it's New raining. Zealand and it's raining. That's unbelievable. Was Harvey Keitel trying to stick it's his always finger raining. in a hole in your stocking at the time? One rainy day, we decided to take a, a family trip to watch Rogue One. After purchasing our tickets, we formed an orderly queue and one by one... One, one had, by 100. One by 100. <laughs> uh, handed our tickets to the, to the manager, who then allowed a entry. He was as quirky as his cinema and took each ticket from the hands of his customers and responded with a cheerful, Spank you! Instead of a thank you. I don't like the sound of Okay, this is a Benny Hill sketch. I kept my thoughts to myself. I wandered into the screen room. The violation of the code came shortly after we'd taken our seats. Throughout the film, there was the usual code violations. These included punters who feel it necessary to consume industrial quantities of popcorn and boiled sweets, and the two teenage boys directly behind my seat uh, having a farting competition during the show. But all what? these pale into insignificance when taken against the quirky manager's code breach. Immediately after we had sat down and before the show started, he stood at the front of the room and began to explain where Rogue One fitted into the Star Wars world. No. No issue so far. However, he then began to reveal spoiler... No! Ups, no! Letting us know that the final scenes involved with the... to the... and how... against the... However, to full stop. That was a much redacted (laughs) sentence. He was warming to his theme now and started revealing other parts of the plot. I could not believe that he'd been so thoughtless and because of this fool, we all knew exactly how the film ended. He told us how it finished. Notwithstanding him, the film was ace and their home-baked cookies were superb. If any other listeners find themselves... In and again, it does mention the name. I don't see why we can't mention this place. Anyway, this quirky cinema in this quirky town. Uh, it looks as though it might be slightly suggestive. By the way, it lo- the, the name of this place. What is it? I'm not telling. 
Anyway, just remember to close your ears if the manager sticks his head into the room before the film starts. Anyway. It's unbelievable that he should actually stand up and explain. It's kind of like Greek choruses, though, isn't that? It's what used to happen. You know, somebody would get up and say, the play that you're about to see yes. has Hamlet. And anyway, it all ends up with everyone kills each other. So um, uh, we've got to the end of this podcast, which is long enough. No, we haven't. We haven't done DVD of the week. I know. I'm just coming to my final... Uh, well, when you say it's long enough, what do you mean? It's clearly not long you've enough. You've been rambling for long enough. That's what it's been Should we call it on rambling with entertainment? Right, you ready? Yeah. It's time for DVD of the week. Yes, that I was born. You spoiled that. So it's, never, it's not possible to spoil this. La, la, la. Yeah, that spoiled it. <laughs> <laughs> Next Monday is Greedy Smith's birthday. Who? Greedy Smith, you know him. Vocalist, keyboardist, harmonicist and songwriter. Harmonicist. With Australian pop new wave band Mental As Anything. You know, live it up. If you know Greedy Smith, perhaps he'd like a DVD or Blu-ray for a birthday present, in which case we can help. So what would you choose Greedy Smith from Mental As Anything as a birthday present? And what would Mark pick as a birthday present for Greedy Smith from Mental As Anything? Well, Ben Wellborn says, Hey there, you with a sad face, come up to my place and watch Hunt For The Wilder People because it's clearly the best DVD release of the week. Helen Jenkins says, Hunt For The Wilder People, no contest. Stuart Johnson says, Whoa, expressionism overload. The cabinet of Dr Caligari every day of the week. Amy Saxby says, Hunt for the Wilder People, it's a no-brainer, also on Netflix. Oh, is it? Oh, OK, I'll watch it on them. Is it there already? John Mills, Kubo and the Two Strings for me, but Dr Flappy Hands will pick either Hunt for the Wilder People or Girl with All the Gifts. I think he'll pick the latter. I never want to see that version of Ben Hare again. I'm only just getting over watching it on 3D at the cinema. And Catherine Ashworth, have to go for Kubo and the Two Strings, was in tears for most of it, but beautiful animation, fantastic yet devastating plot, second favourite film of last year for good reason. What is our DVD of the week? I love Hunt for the Wilder People. It's just really, really funny and charming and brilliant performances and it was a total surprise. I saw it first at the Shetland Film Festival knowing nothing about it uh, and I just fell in love with it. I saw it with an audience of all ages and they all loved it and it's completely delightful and charming and funny and strange and melancholic and beautiful and generally fabulous. Excellent. We're looking forward to the, the Reconnaissance Part 2. Because he has, he does, basically, he doesn't come on the show very often. He doesn't. Uh, was it Magic Mike that he did, 2012, something like yeah, that? Yeah, That's five years with that Matthew McConaughey. It is. So to make up for it, he's got two films out uh, next week and he's going to talk about both of them. Wow. Be trouble. Wow. Mark, you've been fabulous. You've been great. You're looking great, by the way. You're looking, looking tip-top. Particularly trim. Thanks, mate. Tink- this is Backman Turner Overdrive. Tinkety-tonk. And down with the Nazis. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.